The murder of one person is called unrighteous and incurs one death penalty. Following this argument, the murder of ten persons will be ten times as unrighteous and there should be ten death penalties. The murder of a hundred persons would be a hundred times as unrighteous and there should be a hundred death penalties. All the gentlemen of the world know that they should condemn these things, calling them unrighteous. But when it comes to the great unrighteousness of states attacking states, they do not know they should condemn it. On the contrary, they applaud it, calling it righteous. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone. Today we have the author of Fool's Errand, Scott Horton. Uh, he is the managing director of the Libertarian Institute, of which I contrib contribute from time to time. He's the host of Anti-War Radio for Pacifica 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. Scott Horton, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Keith. Appreciate it. So uh, what is libertarianism and why are you a libertarian? Oh, uh, well, you know, I don't know. I think libertarianism ultimately is the unified field theory of human freedom. So it's one part natural rights theory, one part Austrian school economics, one part revisionist bogus history, one part anti-imperialism. And um, it basically it all stems from what Sheldon Richmond calls the non-aggression obligation that um, not just the non-aggression principle, but that we owe it to each other to not because we are social animals. Uh, we owe it to each other to not uh, use force, to not initiate aggression against each other. And so that would include fraud and theft of other people's justly acquired property. And um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's And, you know, I guess the real insight, too, is that liberty works that this is a principle that in practice makes sense so a lot of people say well communism's good in theory but it's just when you try it you end up with stalin well it's a bad theory that's the problem with libertarianism we can see how the theory works in practice constantly and what's good about it and then mostly what people point to as flaws in libertarianism almost always, and you could call this confirmation bias or whatever, but um, depends on, on your point of view, I suppose. But, um, you know, for the most part, we can explain how, no, the thing that you have a problem with is actually contrary to libertarianism in the first place. So like an easy example of this would be uh, the socialists all over Twitter saying, well, if capitalism's so great, then how come it needs a giant bailout from the government every 10 years? But of course, us pure capitalists, laissez-faire, Austrian school uh, economics types, we're the first ones to explain what causes the boom and the bust. It was Ludwig von Mises 100 years ago that settled it in his book, The Theory of Money and Credit. It's not the business cycle. It's not the wild excesses of laissez-faire capitalism that caused the boom and then the bust. It's the government control over the money supply. And... You know, I think I probably learned in school, I can't say for sure, but I think I'm pretty pretty certain that I learned in seventh grade that the Federal Reserve was one of the reforms of the New Deal after the wild excesses of laissez-faire free market capitalism in the roaring 20s had brought about the stock market crash and the Great Depression. And it wasn't until I was adult that I learned that actually, no, the Federal Reserve had been created 20 years before and you know, probably in order that they could... Uh, inflate away the price of American entry into World War One, And then it was 
you know, monetary inflation throughout the 1920s and especially 27 through 29 uh, engaged in by the central bank, really the what was then what we now call the open market committee it was essentially the New York Fed that was in the driver's seat then. And they had inflated all this money because Benjamin Strong, who was the head of the New York Fed, had was essentially a uh, student of um, Montague Norman, the head of the Bank of England. And the Bank of England had debased their currency in order to fight their wars in South Africa. And so Benjamin Strong, in order to do a favor for Montague Norman and the British to prop up the British pound, started inflating away the U.S. dollar. And this is what caused not just widespread price inflation in the economy and a, a prevention of prices going lower as production was expanding, but it caused a massive bubble in the stock market. And then that was what popped in 29 and then led Hoover and then Roosevelt to embark on all of these governmental controls over the economy in the name of fixing the crisis that only made matters worse and ended up prolonging the Great Depression for almost a generation. It wasn't didn't really end until the end of World War II in 1946 and so you know 17 years later uh, before the great depression finally ended and um, you know the whole mythology of herbert hoover being a ron paul type is of course completely incorrect he was um you know a progressive uh, the republicans were the progressives then and uh, that's why the hoover dam is not named the fdr dam but the hoover dam uh, he was the one who started all this one of the first things he did was institute a nationwide massive minimum wage, right? As there's incredible pressure, downward pressure on wages across the country, he essentially outlawed the hiring of anyone for less than whatever the base price was then, which just threw millions of people directly out of work and, you know, all this stuff. But in other words, um, to, to sum back up, the critics of free market capitalism or of libertarian theory in general, they almost always have an example that's something that we're against too. And so, for example, we're against the government paying everybody to be unemployed uh, during the crisis that they've created here, or certainly for the long term, uh, with new proposals for universal basic income and things like this. And it's pretty easy to anticipate a liberal or progressive or a socialist saying, well, the government can create Q1, QE1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 and, and print as much money as they want to bail out their banker friends, but not poor and working people, huh? And the answer to that is that those bankers and the bureaucrats who bail them out should be crucified. That the libertarians are the ones who hate bailouts for bankers more than any socialist does. Um, you know, we were here first in hating bailouts for bankers. They get to participate in this system. They get all the new money first and get to hook up all their cronies with it at artificially low interest rates. And then they want to be bailed out on the backs of the poor and the working people, by all means, burn them at the stake. And we will not object. Um, and you know, start with Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan Chase and Citigroup and then work down from there. So. Terrific. I want to take that libertarian principle and try to apply it to your field, foreign policy or the non-aggression obligation that you mentioned. I want to quote from Kissinger, the idealist from Niall Ferguson. He asked the question, how many Hitlers have we avoided by having an interventionist U.S. foreign policy? Page 23, as Kissinger pointed out to Oriana Felici, 
the history of things that didn't happen needs to be considered before we may pass any judgment on the history of things that did happen. We need to consider not only the consequences of what American governments did during the Cold War, but also the probable consequences of the different foreign policies that might have been adopted. How does Scott Horton respond? Well, of course, it's completely unfalsifiable and spoken as, you know, from the lips of a proven war criminal, a guy who killed and was responsible for the policies that killed millions of human beings. And so, of course, he's going to say, yeah, but just think of all the millions who had died if I had never acted. And of course, you know, the, the triumph of Henry Kissinger, the greatest triumph there, is prolonging the war in Vietnam, which the Democrats had begun. But in 1968, the Democrats were trying to negotiate an end to the war. But Nixon was running on, I have a secret plan to end the war. And so um, even though he had no political power at all at that time, no official political power, uh, Henry Kissinger was on his team and they arranged for a woman named Anna Chenault to go over to South Korea, uh, to South Vietnam and warn the South Vietnamese about the American negotiations with the North that were taking place in secret and botched those. And Lyndon Johnson is even recorded on the phone talking with a Republican senator saying, this is treason. They ought not to be doing that. And but he didn't expose them. He let them get away with it. And they prolonged the war in Vietnam for years. And now what was the primary result of that? America lost anyway. And the communists took over anyway. And this was all in the name of, look, you know, yeah, we we'd hate to have to pay the market price for tungsten. So let's you know, we have to dominate Vietnam forever. But the excuse that they told the people was that we're preventing communism from taking over all of Southeast Asia. The domino theory, if Vietnam falls and South Vietnam falls, the next will be Laos and Cambodia and Thailand and the rest and the Reds will own it all. But never mind the fact that the Vietnamese hated the Chinese and had fought like 10 wars against the Chinese going back to antiquity. And if there was one thing about the Vietnamese, their nationalism was based on anti-China rejectionism. Um, you know, and Mao and his government did help Ho Chi Minh during the war to a degree, but that never bought them, you know, control over uh, the Vietnamese government. They hate Ho Chi Minh hated Mao and, and the Vietnamese hated China. And then what ended up happening, of course, was that the war in Vietnam is what knocked over the dominoes in uh, in Laos and especially in Cambodia, where. Uh, the prince that America was propping up in Cambodia was completely discredited by his association with the United States and his allowing, quote unquote, the Americans to continue to bomb his country and kill millions of his people for years during that war. And then this is what helped to destabilize the whole place and allow Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to then come down out of the northern woods and take over the place and, you know, committed one of the worst auto genocides, they call it in history, where within just a couple of years, they killed three million of their own people. And then guess what? It was the North Vietnamese communists after their success in driving out the Americans and in conquering the South. They were the ones who invaded Cambodia in order to throw Pol Pot out of power and save the people of Cambodia from the communist government that had taken over there. And at that point, or at least a little bit later on, uh, I'm not sure if this started with Ford, but certainly by the time of Jimmy Carter, America was backing Pol Pot 
And Ronald Reagan picked up that policy and continued that policy of backing Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge against their enemies just because they hated Vietnam more. Even though by far the worst criminals against humanity were the Cambodians. And so I'm sorry, I got to go close the window. There's some terrible noise going on out there. I'm not sure if you're hearing that or not. I was not, uh, wasn't able to hear it. No problem. I think it's a skill saw across the street there. I'd hate to have that all over the interview here. Um, But so, um, and then look at who they all call Hitler. Uh, And of course, Henry Kissinger supported the both wars in Iraq. They called Saddam Hussein Hitler. But when Saddam Hussein committed all of his worst war crimes was when he was working for Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, especially during the Reagan years when he did the Anfall campaign against the Kurds. Jimmy Carter had originally given him the green light to invade Iran, a war that caused about half a million lives on each side. And his very worst war crimes were, was the Anfall campaign where he killed approximately 100,000 Kurds. But that was because the Americans uh, you know, were supporting him and letting him get away with it. And, and letting him know that he could get away with it all. Um, they called Noriega Hitler. When Noriega had worked for the CIA and was had been a loyal puppet up until he cut the Americans out of his cocaine running profits and decided to keep it for himself. Not sure which all orders he disobeyed that got him in so much trouble. But to call the leader of Panama Hitler has got to be the biggest joke in the entire world. They did the same thing to Slobodan Milosevic when in fact it was the Americans who ruined the peace deal in the Balkans in 1992 and started the war. They had a deal where the Croats and the Bosnian Muslims had a coalition government and the Serbs were in the minority. And the Serbs agreed to that and said, okay, fine, as long as we have you know relative autonomy, you guys can have the ruling coalition, that's fine. And then the American ambassador Zimmerman came in and convinced the Croats that you guys could have it all. You should start the war. Here's a bunch of weapons and you shouldn't have to settle for this deal with the Serbs. And that was really what caused, you know, a great part of the, um, you know, ethnic fighting that killed hundreds of thousands of people in the Balkans in the early 1990s. Um, And, you know, so look at the body count. You know, America killed... Two million Koreans, probably three between three and five million Vietnamese, Laotians, and Cambodians. The CIA and America has to take responsibility for this when the CIA backed Suharto's coup in Indonesia and then his war against leftists that killed, you know, hundreds of thousands. I don't know if anybody knows exactly how many hundreds of thousands of supposed leftists and East Timorese and whoever else. Um and then our wars in the Middle East just in this century have killed upwards of 2 million Arabs and Pashtuns. If you count everybody killed in Iraq War II, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. People forget how bad Obama's war was in Pakistan for a few years there in his first term. But, uh, you know, on the order of a couple of hundred thousand people were killed in that too. And so, um, of course, Henry Kissinger is going to say, yeah, but think about if we hadn't have done all that we'd done, it probably would have been that much worse. But why should we believe that at all, right? Like if 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 after September 11th, they had just sent Donald Rumsfeld back to Iraq to read Hussein the Riot Act and tell him, listen, we're going to allow you back in from the cold as long as you keep al-Qaeda down and as long as you don't invade Kuwait again, we're going to go ahead and normalize relations. 
then why in the world should we think that Saddam Hussein was going to just, what, start butchering Kurds for fun? Or something like that when he had no need to. By the time of the invasion, we found out later from the FBI agent interrogation of Saddam Hussein. And, and in fact, I think they probably knew this from uh, the CIA uh, asset, uh, Naji Sabri, his, uh, one of his foreign ministers or intelligence officers, that Saddam Hussein was in the middle of writing a romance novel when America intervened in 2003 and invaded his country. He was hardly even the president anymore at all. He was kind of in semi-retirement and it turned much of the country over to his sons and his other ministers. He was writing a novel, Keith, when they invaded in 2003. Does that sound like, and, and I don't know if anybody knows anything about Adolf Hitler. It's, he's sort of just a caricature, a face on TV. But if you actually read about Hitler, this was probably the most fanatical human man that ever existed the most single-mindedly determined person to ever rule over anyone. I mean, this guy got up at 4 a.m. every day for decades, figuring out what it would take for him to get that total power. And when you read the history of how many times he could have been stopped but wasn't, it's just the most frustrating thing in the world. This is a dangerous guy. He makes Saddam Hussein look like Sheldon Richmond. I mean, give me a freaking break, okay? Um, there's, it's the the people who compare to Adolf Hitler include Stalin and Mao and maybe Churchill, and that's about it, okay? Genghis Khan and Tamer Lane are not in Hitler's league, okay? Um, you know, um, I was told, I can't say who, but I was told by someone who I think really knows his stuff that the Soviets didn't lose 27 million men in World War II. They lost 40 million. But they just couldn't admit that their losses were that terrible. And that it would be too much of a sign of weakness uh, that they had been that completely devastated. And there's just nothing that compares to World War II and the Nazi regime. And then, the you know, Henry Kissinger, who was in World War II and fought on the American side in World War II. He knows better. He knows the truth about who Hitler was and how that compares to somebody like Noriega or Saddam Hussein. It's a joke. Uh, Kissinger spoke in 1973 at the UN General Assembly saying, the philosopher Kant predicted that perpetual peace would come eventually either as the creation of man's moral aspirations or as the consequence of physical necessity. What seemed utopian then looms as tomorrow's reality. Soon there will be no alternative. Our only choice is whether the world envisioned in the United Nations Charter will come about as the result of our vision or of a catastrophe invited by our short-sightedness. Page 29, Kissinger, The Idealist by Niall Ferguson. Mm -hmm. So if we want world peace, do we need to just say it's inevitable we need world government and therefore U.S. interventions on behalf of the U.N. are justified? Well, absolutely not. And of course, I mean, the question answers itself. Look at America's enforcement of the world law. It's an absolute catastrophe. It's a bloody wreck. They spent, even if you just take this century and the terror war interventions, in the name of enforcing United Nations resolutions in Iraq, especially. It's been an absolute catastrophe. They started a sectarian war that is not going to end in our lifetimes. And, um, you know, they've completely destabilized everything exactly as our enemies were intending to do to give George Bush an excuse.
to overreact and destabilize and overthrow the entire region. So it makes sense in if you're you know a college student and it's all theoretical and you go, well, the wars happen because these states are in competition and they seek their own interests and they're willing to kill each other over it. And so I guess we have to have a one world government. And then that way, you know, the bureaucrats somewhere at the top will figure out how to distribute the resources in a way that the states won't fight over them. But of course, what happens when a George W. Bush is the president of the world? What happens when a Henry Kissinger is in charge of deciding you know, the, the, the worst hypothetical would be, well, what happens if a Hitler takes over the world government? But what happens if a Bush takes over the world government? That's what we saw in 2003. He kills a million people. His successor kills another million. And what does anybody get out of it? Stability? So one world government, its first priority, of course, will be to go to war. What's the first thing the United Nations did? Authorize war in Korea. You know, which... The Russians and the Chinese were sitting that decision out. So the Security Council voted to authorize it. And then the first thing that happened was Truman sent troops off to war and for the first time without any kind of declaration of war. Sent them off in the middle of the night. Congress found out the next day that the war is on. And Truman said, well, I have the UN charter that authorizes me to do this. I don't need you. And so, you know, isn't that great? From now on, we're going to prevent wars between states by having this state be the world government, the enforcer of the world law, and then its only obligation is to wage war unendingly in the name of perpetual peace. And in fact, that was the book by Harry Elmer Barnes back after World War II, Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. This is your excuse for your clampdown, but you're not setting the world free. You're just enslaving them only now from North America instead of under the thumb of the Germans or whoever else. I want to quote from page 184 from Decision Points by George Bush uh, in, a title, in a chapter titled Afghanistan. Removing al-Qaeda's safe haven in Afghanistan was essential to protecting the American people. We had planned the mission carefully. We were acting out of necessity and self-defense, not revenge. History can debate the decisions I made the policies I chose, the tools I left behind, but there can be no debate about one fact. After the nightmare of September 11th, America went seven and a half years without another successful terrorist attack on our soil. If I had to summarize my most meaningful accomplishment as president in one sentence, that would be it. How does Scott Horton respond? Well, there's a few different ridiculous jokes in there. First of all, they didn't have to invade Afghanistan at all. The Taliban hated Osama bin Laden and wanted rid of him. You know, the radical becomes a conservative the day he seizes the capital city. Okay, the Taliban weren't even done taking over the whole country yet. And they severely resented bin Laden and his group of Saudis and Egyptians coming in and getting them into trouble with the world superpower. And in July of 2001, Mullah Omar had told Arnaud Debourgrave from the Washington Times, that Osama bin Laden is like a chicken bone stuck in my throat. I can neither swallow him nor spit him out. But they had been trying to negotiate to surrender bin Laden ever since the embassy attacks of 1998. And Mullah Omar had told bin Laden that he was forbidden from releasing any more statements threatening the U.S. or anything like that. Um, after the war, 
a Wall Street Journal reporter found a computer with a letter on it from bin Laden to Mullah Omar saying, please forgive me. I'm so sorry for getting you into this mess. I know how this looks, but trust me, in 10 years, more like 20, the Americans will finally be bankrupt and broken and will be forced to withdraw in humiliation. And if they if they refuse to attack now, we look strong. If they attack and invade and occupy the place and we end up bogging them down and bleeding them dry and forcing them out like we did the Soviet Union, then so much the better. And of course, bin Laden really was kind of a Leninist in that sense. He didn't care how many uh, eggs he had to break to make the omelet, how many Afghan uh, you know, civilians had to die. I mean, here he was blatantly trying to recreate the war against the Soviets in the 1980s when America had backed the Mujahideen side. But a million Afghans were killed by the Soviets. He figured, fine, whatever. If we got to recreate that, if that's what it takes to force the American empire out, let God sort them out. They're believers. They'll go to heaven anyway, right? So um, that was the thing. So George W. Bush was just falling straight into bin Laden's trap by invading Afghanistan. He acted like he, you know, oh, he destroyed their safe haven. Uh, you see what he's leaving out there? actually killing bin Laden. What did he not do? Actually kill bin Laden. He sent in Delta Force Team B, but he pulled Team A out before Team B got there. The Delta Force begged over and over and over for him to send the Green Berets who were stationed in northern Afghanistan to come and help. No dice. They asked for the Marines to come from down in Kandahar, where General Mattis was in charge. General Mattis was asking to go. New York Times quote, the general was turned down. The Marines could have been used to seal the Pakistani border. They were not. The Army Rangers had the Bagram Air Base north of Kabul. Tens of thousands of Army Rangers there. Not allowed to join in the fight. Instead, you had one small team of Delta Force operators and their CIA liaisons uh, from the Special Activities Division working with two groups of local Mujahideen warlords a guy named Zayman and a guy named Ali, um, who their fighters, this is now legend, their fighters went home every night and then had to climb back up the mountain again every morning and, you know, made no progress. And the whole time for week, look, they knew that bin Laden was at Tora Bora by the third week in November. He didn't escape till December 17th. That entire time, the CIA and the Delta Force were begging for reinforcements and were rejected over and over and over again. So George Bush can crow about, oh, he smashed their safe haven in Afghanistan, but he didn't kill bin Laden and I'm an al-Zawahiri. It took 10 years before the SEALs ended up killing bin Laden in, uh, well, nine years, in uh, 2010 in Pakistan. Zawahiri's still podcasting from somewhere in Pakistan, exhorting his followers to violence against the U.S. And then as far as him saying, well, there were no successful terrorist attacks against the country in that time, I'd have to get my my um, my timeline out. But uh, the reality, the, first of all, the major point there is Al-Qaeda was not a mass movement. Al-Qaeda was one small special forces group, essentially. Um, so at the time of the September 11th attack, unlike the lie that they pushed on TV, they knew that there were not Al-Qaeda sleeper cells in the United States. 
there were no Al-Qaeda in your hometown. There were no Al-Qaeda in Chicago, in L.A., in San Francisco, in Houston, in Dallas, in Miami. They weren't here. The few handlers of the hijackers had hightailed it out of the country before the attack, left their dinner on the table down there in Florida and everything. Um, and so, you know, there was the, um, the shoe bomber, Richard Reed, whose attack failed, but he got through the net. You know, there was a crash in Brooklyn. There was a plane that went down in Brooklyn just a couple of weeks after the attack that they said was an accident that I still to this day think was suspicious, where the engines fell off the plane and all of this stuff. Um, I forgot the name of the flight now. Um, but um, and, and, and meanwhile, all through the Bush years, what they did was they drummed up fake terrorist plots. And they had the FBI. There's a great book about this. I actually started to write a book about this at one point, but uh, none of the publishers seemed very interested in it. Um, but Trevor Aronson wrote a book about this called The Terror Factory. And it's about how all through the Bush years, they drummed up entrapment cases against idiots in order to make it look like there was a real terrorist threat in the country, especially to keep people afraid, to keep the orange alerts blaring until they could find a chance, until they could have their chance to invade Iraq. They knew it would take about a year and a half to build up all their forces in Kuwait to do it. And so, remember the Liberty City Seven, who were just some ghetto gangsters who were bribed $20,000 to say they loved Osama into the camera and the microphone. Um, they had a retarded kid at a bookstore in New York who they framed up for a plot to attack the subway there. You had the... Um, the uh, uh, oh, um, this poor kid, Hamid Hyatt, out in Lodi, California, where they sent the FBI sent an informant to infiltrate him and his dad. There was no cell. It was just a family, a father and son. And this guy insinuated himself into the family, started calling the dad dad, started treating the son like his little brother and waited for months and months until he was completely insinuated with them and then browbeat this kid into saying he loved Osama and then. At one time, you could watch the video of this on the LA Times site. I'm sure it's not there anymore, but at one point, um, you could watch the video of the FBI's interrogation of this kid. And what happened was he went to Pakistan, to Karachi, Pakistan, to visit his grandfather. And while he was there, we know this now, while he was there, he did nothing but play soccer and video games and hang out with his cousins and then come home and nothing happened at all. That's the truth. But what the FBI did was they just coerced him and he was just a kid. And they coerced him into saying that, oh, you know what? His father's, his grandfather's house in Pakistan, it wasn't in Karachi. It was in Islamabad. And in fact, actually, yeah, you're right. Now that I think about it, it wasn't in Islamabad, Pakistan at all. It was in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And what were they doing there in Kandahar, Afghanistan? Why, his grandfather's house was an Al-Qaeda training camp. And, and where did these Al-Qaeda fighters train? This kid's clearly making this all up at essentially gunpoint. What were they doing there? What kind of training? Well, you see, um, or where were they training? Um, in the basement. Yeah, my grandfather's basement is where all the Al-Qaeda fighters were training there. And the, and the cop says, okay, well, what kind of training are we talking about there? And he says, well, you know, and he, he kind of pantomimes like he has a stick. So if, if you were the FBI agent and trapping this kid and, you know, putting words in his mouth, you might say, what, they're teaching him stick fighting, something like that, right? But this idiot cop says, what, pole vaulting? He's teaching them pole vaulting? 
And the kid says, yes, yes, that's right. My grandfather is training Al-Qaeda in pole vaulting in his basement in Kandahar. And the jury put this kid in prison for 20 years. He just got out, you know, a little bit early last year. And there are tons of these, the Fort Dix pizza plot, the uh, the uh, JFK airport gasoline tank plot, and all of these. They're completely made up. Uh, even the, um, this one was Obama years, was the one in Garland, Texas, at the Draw Mohammed cartoon contest. And this one actually came to violence. The guy shot a security guard, but then was shot to death by cops before he even got out of the car. And it turned out that he had been put up to it by an FBI informant. And the last thing the FBI informant had said to the kid was, go tear up Texas. You got this. And then that kid went and was going to kill people at this Draw Mohammed contest. Just so happened the cops were there waiting for him and and killed him in the car. Um, and, and these went on and on and on. Now, during this whole time, during the Bush years, on my show, we would talk about how sooner or later entrapments, they won't have to rely on entrapments anymore because the reality is they never did hate us because we're free. They hated us because of George Bush and Bill Clinton's foreign policy, and that's why they attacked us. And what George W. Bush has done is just double down on that. And so there's no question that sooner or later, this policy is going to provoke new attacks against the United States. And it's very difficult for real al-Qaeda guys to get into the country and plan attacks, but that's where the so-called lone wolves come in. And they just get radicalized reading the internet or uh, you know, emailing back and forth with an Al-Qaeda guy like um, uh, Hassan that did the attack in at Fort Hood uh, where he attacked and, and killed American GIs who were about to deploy to Afghanistan. And um, he had been in contact with Anwar al-Awlaki, the Al-Qaeda uh, PR guy, basically. And you know, we don't know. I don't think we know exactly what they had emailed back and forth, but the FBI was on his case. The FBI knew that this guy was in contact with Anwar al and had been emailing back and forth with him. So were they watching him like a hawk? Did they urge the army to kick him out and, you know, prevent his access? No, instead they did nothing. They sat on their hands while this guy uh, killed 13 uh, GIs before somebody finally put him down. Uh, and then, you know, there's the San Bernardino attack. There's the um, uh, Miami uh, um, or Orlando, pardon me, Orlando, Florida attack where the guy attacked the gay nightclub. And and this is a really important one too. Omar Mateen. They spun the whole thing as he has this horrible Islamic religious bias against gay people. And or maybe he was secretly gay himself and was having a crisis of identity here and that that was his motive. And it finally came out after years, it came out during his wife's trial that there was actually no indication whatsoever that this guy was biased against gays or was gay himself or any of that narrative at all. The only reason he chose the Pulse nightclub is because he first wanted to attack Disney World, but decided that they had too good a security. And so instead, he decided to, uh, he just Googled nightclub and he picked Google's first result for nightclub in Orlando. And that was why he hit the Pulse nightclub. And so, but for years, his motive was completely obscured when 
In fact, he had written on Facebook and had told the 911 operator that this was all about American foreign policy, bombing Syria, bombing Iraq, bombing Afghanistan. And so then there's the guy that did the sidewalk. Luckily, the bombings that didn't kill anybody on the sidewalks in New York and New Jersey during those races um, was also uh, motivated by American foreign policy. The guy that tried to blow up Times Square in 2010, Faisal Shahzad, he was a naturalized American citizen with an advanced degree, a big house, a wife and a car and a good job and all of these things and was living the American dream better than a lot of us. Uh, then he went home to Pakistan and he saw the results of an American drone strike there and was recruited by the Tariqi Taliban. That's the Pakistani Taliban that had never attacked us before, had no motive to attack us at all as a separate group entirely from the Afghan Taliban, which also had never attacked the United States, by the way. Um, but then he tried to set off this bomb. They trained him and he tried to set off this bomb in Times Square, which luckily failed, but could have killed many civilians there. And on, on during his trial, the judge said, how dare you? How could you do this? There's women and children around. And he says, well, you're drone bombing my country right now. You think the drone operators look and then don't fire if there's women and children? They kill women and children all the time. That's exactly the same thing. That's why I'm doing this. Um, the Boston attack. The um, And this is one where, just like as we predicted, not only will Bush and Obama's foreign policy provoke more attacks, you know, real attacks against us, but... At the same time, you're going to have, and these are my words, someday we're going to be able to transcribe automatically all my old shows and you'll be able to find, you'll be able to search and find where years previously I had warned that while the FBI's chasing their tail, screwing around and trapping some retarded kid down at the Islamic bookstore, you're going to have real terrorist attacks unfolding, real plots unfolding right under their noses. And that's exactly what happened in Boston where the Russians, the evil, vile Vladimir Putin, had warned the United States that these boys were living in Dagestan and were messing around with jihadists, were piling around with very dangerous people. And so you should be very careful about them. Well, the FBI, the Boston FBI, was right in the middle of a bogus entrapment case. And all of their terrorist guys all their anti-terrorist personnel were focused on this fake entrapment while the Tsarnaev brothers blew up the Boston Marathon and killed three people. And then hilariously, the younger brother crushed the older brother to death in his getaway. So that was kind of hilarious. But then um, the younger brother was snuck into a boat. That was his hiding place when he ran away. He climbed under the tarp of a boat. And he had carved into the inside wall in the fiberglass of the boat that his motive was all about Afghanistan. America's war in Afghanistan was the motive for him to continue attacking the United States. And you might be familiar, Keith, with this reporter from the New York Times named Thomas Gibbons Neff, who for a New York Times reporter, I really respect him. I don't agree. I don't like everything he writes, but he does good work a lot of times. And he's a former Marine. And he had written previously, he worked for the Washington Post before the New York Times. And he had written a thing in the Washington Post about how there he was in Afghanistan when he heard about the Boston Marathon attack. And he said, well, wait a minute. I've been telling myself this whole time that the reason I'm over here putting myself at risk is to be a magnet for these bad guys, that they will come and try to mess with me way out here in the wilderness in Afghanistan 
and I'll draw them to me and I'll kill them good. And by doing so, I'll keep my people safe back home. But wait a minute. If my presence in Afghanistan is what's causing people to attack civilians back home, then what the hell am I doing here? Aha. Yeah. And it turns out it wasn't freedom. It was George Bush and Bill Clinton's foreign policy that they hated that motivated them to attack us in the first place. It always was what America had done to them first. And so what is George W. Bush going to admit that, that this is all his father's fault and his best friend, his stepbrother, adopted stepbrother, Bill Clinton, that they were the ones who had done this? Nope. Instead, they blame it all on Americans' innocence. And then they tell you that if we don't go and kill a million more innocents, then somebody's going to nuke you in your jammies in the middle of the night. And so our only choice is to go over there and make war. And what's funny is, again, with the counterfactual here with Iraq, about having to go to Iraq. Well, Colin Powell was the Secretary of State. He was a former four-star general, a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was the four-star general, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, at the time of Iraq War One, So he quite personally had overseen the destruction of Iraq's military, their water, their sewage, their electricity, their hospitals, their everything. You're telling me he's not tough enough to send over there to read the riot act to Saddam Hussein? And maybe Colin Powell was just an old marshmallow and an old softy by then despite him covering up the My Lai massacre and despite him being Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, maybe by the time of 2002, he was the wimp that um, Dick Cheney said he was. Okay, so send Dick Cheney then. Send Donald Rumsfeld back over there. We know that Donald Rumsfeld went over there to make a deal with him and to agree that America would back him in the war against Iran and to try to pressure him to build a pipeline to Jordan at the time that Bechtel was supposed to build. Why can't we send Donald Rumsfeld back over there in 2002 to tell Saddam Hussein, listen, we're going to let you keep your clean shaven chin and your French beret as long as you promise to keep Al Qaeda down. And that's all they had to do. Saddam Hussein had every interest in the world to hunt and kill Al Qaeda guys and no interest whatsoever in allying with them against the United States. And George Bush's government knew that. And that war has engendered and spread more terrorism throughout the world than any other thing. And before Obama even took office, Bush wants to claim America was untouched by terrorist attacks for the rest of his terms. Well, what about the Europeans? They had massive attacks in Spain and England and France and all over the place. They're a lot easier to get to. Western targets are a lot easier to get to. And even though... Um, those countries hadn't all attacked Iraq, so Iraq hadn't attacked us either. But they were close enough of a target to be targeted. And the Spanish were targeted clearly because they did help us invade Iraq. And that got them blown up. And um, so uh, there's one more point I was going to make about what he said there. Um, anyway, go ahead. A uh, couple sources uh, that uh, I want to go over for uh, the things you said. Here is the New York Times, 2012, April 29th. 
Uh, terrorist plots helped along by the FBI. Undercover agents and informers posed as terrorists, offering a dummy missile, fake C4 explosives, a disarmed suicide, a disarmed suicide vest, and rudimentary training. When Oregon college student Muhammad Osman Muhammad thought of using a car bomb to attack a festive Christmas. Christmas tree lighting ceremony in Portland, the FBI provided a van loaded with six 55-gallon drums of inert material, harm, harmless blasting caps, a detonator cord, and a gallon of diesel fuel to make the van smell flammable. An undercover FBI agent even did the driving. He finishes with saying, of the 22 most frightening plans for attacks since 9-11 on American soil, 14 were developed in sting operations. It's not easy to tell the difference. The oh, yeah, more than that, more than yeah. that, too. If you read Trevor Aronson's book, The Terror Factory, there's, you know, probably, uh, you know, 150 of these things that I were just outright to, con jobs. I also want to cite from page 51 of Fool's Errand. You had mentioned the U.S. was offered bin Laden. Uh, you cite uh, three sources. White House says no to Taliban offer demand for proof. CBS News, September 21st, 2001. The uh, IPS News, U.S. refusal of 2001 Taliban offer gave bin Laden a free pass. U.S. rejects new Taliban offer. ABC News, October 14th. Bush rejects Taliban offer. Washington Post, new offer on bin Laden, The Guardian. So in other words, this was like open. Everyone knew that there was an offer and it just didn't take place. The final thing you mentioned was the military tactic of having someone use their resources and bringing them in to diminish their overall power. This is well known in a document, I think you've cited it before, by Zbigniew Brzezinski, where he says, hey, Jimmy Carter, we could have the so we could give the Soviets their Vietnam by pulling them into Afghanistan. It's like they train the Mujahideen to do the very same thing that they want to do to the current empire exactly in right. America. And if people want to read the Brzezinski's note to Carter, you can just go to scotthorton.org slash fair use. And I have for you right there, the uh, Jimmy Carter's executive order, ordering the beginning of support for the Mujahideen on July 3rd, 1979. And Zbigniew Brzezinski's note to Carter um, in December when the Soviets did invade, that now we have our opportunity of giving them their own Vietnam. And then very famously, there's also his interview with a French magazine where he brags about it and says, and I told Jimmy Carter, now's our chance. And so, you know, it's such an important point that, listen, what does it mean to give them their own Vietnam? Well, what's Vietnam? A great victory? No, Vietnam is a massive no-win quagmire that breaks the bank, that divides society back home, that weakens your own country. It's a trap that we had set for ourselves in Vietnam. So then one of the parts of the aftermath of that was what was called the lamented Vietnam syndrome, where the Americans had this reluctance to go to war that amounted to an illness, uh, that they just didn't want to go on these, any more of these um, wars around the world. And so what they decided was, people like Zbigniew Brzezinski and Walter Slocum and others had said, well, listen, if we had the Vietnam syndrome and and the American people are reluctant to continue containing communism in the way that we'd done before, maybe we'll turn it around and maybe we'll bait the Russians into overexpansion 
and bog them down, give them their own Vietnam in order to help to destroy communism. And then Keith, you can't deny it worked. I mean, the fact that they, the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989, one year after the wall came down and one year, uh, I guess two years before the final dissolution of the Soviet Union, that ain't a, a correlation without causation, man. There's a, that is one of the straws that broke the Soviet Union's back. That helped to destroy them. If you ask the Reaganites, they'll tell you. You can find, you know, the Hoover Institution, the Reaganites saying, yeah, and that's how we helped destroy communism was by supporting the Mujahideen in Vietnam, right? Well, I mean, pardon me, in Afghanistan to, to give the Soviets their own Vietnam. Well, of course, the Mujahideen learned the same lesson. And the Mujahideen in this case wasn't just Afghans. It was the Arab Afghan army that the CIA, the Saudis, and the Pakistanis recruited, not just from the Arab world, but from Indonesia and Chechnya and the Philippines and all over the Muslim world to go and fight in that war. But they all took the credit for themselves. They didn't give the credit to Ronald Reagan and the CIA. They gave the credit to Allah and AK-47 and said, we destroyed the godless, atheist, satanic Soviet Union. And all we had to do was believe and fight hard. And so they took the very same lesson. And bin Laden said all through the 1990s that this was his motive. He was open about this before the war ever started, that what he was trying to do was lure us into a Vietnam-type quagmire. When Bill Clinton pulled out of Somalia after Black Hawk Down in 1993, bin Laden lamented that it had been his men who had shot down the Black Hawk and that it was a deliberate provocation because they were trying to provoke Bill Clinton into doubling down the war into a war of attrition so he could give us our own Vietnam, bog us down, bleed us to bankruptcy, and force us out the hard way. However many Somalis had to die in that, he was not concerned. He was, you know, had his eye on the bigger prize. And then once he was exiled from Sudan and forced to go to Afghanistan in 1996, he said over and over again that this was the plan to bog us down, bleed us to bankruptcy. And, um, you know, James Bamford, I don't know if I ever found this original quote, but James Bamford um, in his book, A Pretext for War, uh, says that bin Laden saw himself uh, in, in this plan. He wanted to bog us down and give us our own Vietnam he saw himself in the role of Ho Chi Minh and us down, bleed us to bankruptcy. And then, as I told you earlier, once the war happened, he wrote this letter to Mullah Omar saying, don't worry, it's going to be just like we did to the Soviets, where we bog them down, bleed them to bankruptcy and force them out the hard way. And then, of course, there's the famous speech of 2004, just before the election, where he says, this is our plan is just as we did to the Russians just as you did to yourselves in Vietnam, we're doing to you now. So ask yourself then, if Zbigniew Brzezinski and Walter Slocum were so smart back in 1979 that this was their plan to destroy the Soviet Union would be to trick them into trying to tame Afghanistan, how in the world could these same people, I mean, Brzezinski only died two years ago or something. How could any, and Walter Slocum, I mean, I don't know what his job is now, but he was one of the guys that dissolved the Iraqi army. And he was working for George W. Bush during, at least in 2003. So I don't know exactly where he was during the invasion of Afghanistan, but 
you would think he might have picked up the phone and said, you know, this was our plan to destroy the Soviet Union, was to get them to give themselves their own Vietnam and Afghanistan. We should be really careful that we don't do this to ourselves now. In fact, there are indications that Donald Rumsfeld understood this too. They talked about this in, in Woodward's book, Bush at War. This was one of the reasons that they didn't, this was at least one of their excuses, Keith, for not sending enough troops to corner Al-Qaeda at Tora Bora and finish the job there was we don't want to send too many of our own troops and get bogged down in too big of a mission in a costly mission of trying to pacify Afghanistan. But of course you see the bait and switch right there. Who said anything about pacifying Afghanistan? We're talking about cornering the Saudis and Egyptians and a few Chechens and whoever that you have, you know, cornered in the Nangarhar province. We're trying to get them. And then it turned out that they expanded the mission to full regime change in Kabul and create a new government and declare war against all its enemies and everything else. And now it's 20 years later and we're still there. But that was one of their excuses at the time was that they understood good and well that this is a sand trap and we should avoid it. And then they decided to double, triple, quadruple down anyway. What was the uh, United States' role in invading Libya under the Obama administration? Okay, so, you know, this is one of the ones that they call leading from behind and try to say, oh, no, it's uh, I saw someone the other day um, was arguing that America didn't have anything to do with that. That was the French and the British that did that. But that's just not true. And the French and the British were waiting on Obama to give them the okay. And Obama was the one who gave the okay. And in fact, just in his speech in while he was traveling in Brazil, he said, okay, we're, we're going to war, everybody. And then he relied on a ridiculous lie, a preposterous lie, that Gaddafi had sworn that he was going to murder every last man, woman, and child in the city of Benghazi if we didn't get in there and stop him. And that would be the equivalent of letting someone kill every last man, woman, and child in the city of Charlotte. That's, you know, that was the, the relative size that Obama cited, Charlotte, North Carolina. And so um, that was why we had to start the war. And at the beginning of the war, it was all American planes, Air Force and Navy planes that did all of the original shock and awe attacks. And it was a combination of American, French and British special operations forces on the ground that led the Mujahideen through the war. And that is who it was. And, you know, I'll encourage your audience because it's a hoot to go and watch Michael Scheuer. That's S-C-H-E-U-E-R. Go type in Michael Scheuer, CNN, Libya. And you'll see Michael Scheuer on CNN. And he gets in a fight with the two anchor ladies because he's saying, look, the fighters in this war against Gaddafi right now, in any other war, we would call them the Mujahideen. That's who they are. These are the guys who are the Libyan veterans of Iraq War II. They just got back from Iraq where they were fighting with Zarqawi. They were the worst part of part of the worst part of the Sunni-based insurgency that the Americans were fighting in Iraq War II. And now they've come home to Libya and they've set their sights on Gaddafi. And the, the CNN lady says, oh, come on, Mr. CIA officer, you must not know what you're talking about because wouldn't the CIA officers be vetting these guys? And Shorey says, well, yeah, sure. The, the CIA is vetting the guys that come to be vetted by the CIA. 
but everybody else isn't talking to the CIA. They're just going to be taking advantage of the entire situation, and they're going to ultimately be the winners. And the, the CNN lady is like, well, we just refuse to believe that because we don't want to because this is an American war and it's great. And Shore's like, yeah, well, so what? You're just carrying water for Mr. Obama. You don't want to know the truth that what we're doing is we're taking the side of our enemies in this thing. And they're like, oh, sure. Yeah, right. Like we would carry water for Barack Obama. I think we've you've had your say, Mr. Shore. You have a nice day now. And they hang up on him. And that was probably the last time he was ever on CNN. And then what happened? Who was it? It was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It was the Libyan veterans of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They had been, you know, the, the British MI6 had helped create the Libyan Islamic fighting group in the first place and had tried to use them to kill Gaddafi back in 2000. Then they became the bad guys again for a little while. And then uh, in Iraq War II, then when they came home from Iraq War II, they decided, oh, yeah, it's our old friends in the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. We're not going to call them AQI anymore. Now we're going to call them LIFG and Ansar al-Sharia. And these are moderate rebels and everything will be fine. And then and this included a, a guy named Hasidi who told the Telegraph, yeah, I'm a veteran of Iraq War II where I killed Americans. What of it? OK, I guess nothing. No problem. Go ahead. And then this guy, Abdul Hakim Belhaj had been abducted by the CIA and the British and tortured in Thailand for being an associate of bin Laden and then had been rendered back to Libya where Gaddafi had him in prison, but Gaddafi let him go because that was one of the demands of the international community was you got to let all your Mujahideen out of prison. And so he gave in to that demand and let this guy and others out. And this guy ended up after... Obama put him in power in Tripoli, he sued. Now, there's no such thing as anything like the rule of law in America, so that went nowhere. But in Britain, he actually sued and won, at least through like a couple of appellate levels. He sued the MI6 for kidnapping and torturing him. And the British courts let the case go through. I don't know if he finally won or what. Um, but then, um, you know, this is part of the story of what happened to Ambassador Stevens in 2012, September 11, 2012. The American ambassador to Libya was killed. Well, first of all, it took nine months for the Mujahideen and American and allied air power to win the war. Um, and then Gaddafi was hunted down and uh, raped with a bayonet and then shot in the back of the head on the side of the road. Um, and then a, approximately a year after that, Ambassador Stevens and some others at the makeshift consulate in Benghazi were killed. Well, first question, why weren't they in Tripoli? What were they doing in Benghazi? And of course, the answer is this was Hillary Clinton's bank shot, as the New York Times reported it, her bank shot to take all the Mujahideen and all the weapons from Libya and start funneling them on to Syria for the next regime change in favor of al-Qaeda against another secular socialist dictator. Uh, and so that's why they were in Benghazi is they were running guns and terrorists off to Syria. The Qataris were, you know, mostly, uh, you know, running the thing, but the CIA was overseeing the whole thing and, and the ambassador was helping to coordinate it. Well, guess what? Just cause you love Al Qaeda don't mean that they love you now. And so just because these guys thought, oh, good, it's the Reagan years again and we can, or the Bill Clinton years, and we can go back to backing these guys. Well, they still hate your guts. And what happened was um, Obama and the CIA 
had done a drone strike in um, in um, Pakistan that had killed a guy named Sheikh Yahya Alibi. Now, you might recognize the name Alibi because Sheikh Yahya Alibi's brother, I forgot his first name now off the top of my head, but his brother had been the guy that Dick Cheney and the CIA and the Egyptians tortured into pointing the finger at Saddam Hussein back in 2002. Oh, yeah, Saddam Hussein, he taught us al-Qaeda guys how to make chemical weapons and how to hijack airplanes and all this. And in fact, the CIA themselves, we know now the CIA debunked this. And so we don't believe him because we hired the Egyptians to torture it out of them. And so this is not really reliable data. But don't worry, Colin Powell used it in his U.N. speech to lie us into war anyway. Um, but then in 2012, in July of 2012, CIA killed his brother, Yahya Alibi, in a drone strike in Pakistan. And right after that. I'm in Al-Zawahiri, or like a month later or something. I'm in Al-Zawahiri, um, because bin Laden was dead by then. Zawahiri put out a podcast saying, okay, it's time to avenge our great Libyan friend, uh, Sheikh Yahya al-Libi, who was murdered by the Americans. Hey, friendly Libyan Mujahideen, I hear that you guys have some Americans in your midst who think that they're so clever that they're using you in Syria. Well, now's your chance. And hey, the anniversary of September 11th is coming up. And so then what happened on September 11th? Ansar al-Sharia attacked and killed the American ambassador and, you know, some of his handlers and a couple of CIA guys, too, who were at the, the house down the road. And so then this is a great story because it's the definition of the modified limited hangout, right? So first of all, a limited hangout, and that, that phrase was, I believe, coined by Richard Nixon himself in discussions with Ehrlichman and Haldeman, his right-hand men. Okay, so a limited hangout is like when a kid admits that he did something wrong because he's trying to prevent you from finding out what he really did. That was really that bad, so he confesses halfway, and government does that a lot, right? So they said, well, you know, um, you know, the problem here was that we didn't have enough security. And um, so our guy got killed. And yeah. Okay, but then here's the modified limited hangout. The modified limited hangout is when you lie about your limited hangout. And so you go, yeah, you know what it was? It was a big protest over this video on YouTube that got out of hand and turned into a riot. And that's what killed the guys. So now you're telling a half story and you're lying about the half a story too. So everybody gets all caught up fighting over whether this YouTube video, the innocence of Muslims had caused the riot or not. And they get all caught up over how much security should have been there or not. And then only 1% of people are asking the question, why were these guys in Benghazi and not Tripoli? <laughs> what was even going on there at all? Oh, you were working with the Qataris to funnel a bunch of Al-Qaeda terrorists off to Syria, and you had stationed your ambassador in the middle of a hornet's nest, and now you're surprised that he got stung, right? So that's the real truth. But the modified limited hangout ended up, and look, you know, um, the way they use the word gate after every scandal, you know, like Watergate, but now it's like Lewinsky gate and whatever gate, right? Well, now Ghazi has become kind of a joke, like gate 
only this is when it's a fake scandal because the Republicans spent years holding all these hearings. Remember Trey Gowdy and all these guys holding all these hearings about, well, was it really a riot over the over the video or not? And and how much security was there or not? And the Democrats saw this to be essentially just a completely trumped up scandal, a fake scandal meant to just hurt Obama, even though it was simply a matter of bad things happen sometimes or something like that. So now whenever there's a fake scandal, they'll add Ghazi on the end. And in fact, I've even seen like left wingers who are good on Russiagate because they're not Democrats. They're too left for the Democrats. And so they'll call it Russia Ghazi. Oh, yeah, Russia Ghazi. And that's means of a, a fake scandal that's built out of nothing. But of course, that comes from how fake the modified limited hangout was, not how fake the real scandal behind the death of the ambassador and the entire operation that was going on in Benghazi. And by the way, what if they told the truth at that time? Or what if the truth had come out and they hadn't been able to suppress it? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the, the pressure for the intervention in Syria would have been lessened. And the argument on behalf of staying out of Syria would have been strengthened. That look, from the beginning, these guys aren't moderates. If they're so moderate, how come they killed our ambassador in Libya? They never were moderates. They're Al-Qaeda guys. They always were. And there were different armed factions that rose up. But within the first year of the war in Syria, the entire opposition was dominated by Al-Qaeda in Iraq, who had come across the border from Iraq. They'd been almost entirely eliminated by the Iraqi Sunnis. And then Obama came and resuscitated them right back to life and gave them a whole new battleground to fight in. And then allied with Turkey, Israel, Saudi, and Qatar, billions and billions of dollars in cold hard cash and weapons to fight that war that ended up lasting for five years and grew into the actual Islamic State, the the Islamo-fascist caliphate of George Bush's ridiculous propaganda and Osama bin Laden's wildest dreams actually did come true because Obama backed them in Syria and to such a degree that they ended up strong enough that they were able to conquer all of Western Iraq and, and Eastern Syria and Western Iraq, which necessitated then Iraq War Three, that Obama launched in August of 2014 and lasted through the end of 2017 there to destroy the Islamic State. So who was the U.S. backing in Syria in Operation Timber Sycamore? Well, so it's beyond Timber Sycamore. Timber Sycamore was just one part of it. Um, but overall, they were, I don't know if they ever directly backed the Al-Nusra front there, but they didn't need to. All they needed was the slightest deniability. You know, the so-called moderate rebel groups like the Al-Farouk Brigade, the Al-Hazm Brigade, the uh, Nur Al-Zinki, and these other groups, the CIA would give the weapons and the money to them, and then they would turn it right over to the Al-Nusra front. They would come and train with the Americans in Jordan and in Turkey. They'd get their weapons, their training, their money, and then they'd turn right around and go and join the ranks of the Al-Nusra Front. And the Al-Nusra Front is nothing but the Syrian faction, the Syrian-dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II. And so then the split between ISIS and Al-Nusra came in 2013 when the leader of ISIS decided, well, bin Laden's dead and 
So he might have done what Bin Laden said, but who's Ayman al-Zawahiri anyway? And, and, you know, why should I listen to him? And Zawahiri was the guy who said, we have to attack the United States first. We have to get rid of the far enemy first, bog them down, bleed them to bankruptcy like the Soviets, force them out of the region. Only then can we try to create our Islamo-fascist caliphate because otherwise the Americans will come and bomb it off the face of the earth again. And so Baghdadi said, well, nuts to you. I want my caliphate now, and I don't want to wait. You know, they had renamed al-Qaeda in Iraq. They had renamed it the Islamic State of Iraq back in 2006, which at the time was kind of a joke because they had no ability to create a state anywhere at all. But it also showed you where their head was at and what it was that they wanted out of all of this. And so by 2013, essentially in the spring of 2013, the Iraqi-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq split off from the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is known as al-Nusra, and started going by their old name again, the Islamic State of Iraq. Now they added and Syria, or and the Levant. And Zawahiri sent an emissary to come and negotiate to keep ISIS in the al-Qaeda group. And Baghdadi killed the emissary and said to Zawahiri, you made your law, let's see you enforce it, right? Like Andrew Jackson and the Supreme Court um, on the Trail of Tears. So um, then he consolidated power over eastern Syria. And then one year later, in the spring of 2014, rolled right into western Iraq. And so none of this could have happened without the U.S. And in fact, that famous uh, photo of the line of Toyota trucks rolling in from Syria toward Mosul, where'd all those trucks come from? They came from Hillary Clinton and the State Department. They were the ones who arranged for all those trucks. It was Barack Obama's government who had given all those trucks. There's a great story in uh, Public Radio International all about it. And you might remember this story. You can still find memes about this sometimes. Of There was a guy who owned a plumbing company in Corpus Christi, Texas, who had his the name of his company and the phone number on the side of his truck. It was a work truck. And he had sold it to traded it in to a local uh, car dealership for a new truck. And then like half a year later, there's footage coming out of Syria of these terrorists firing a machine gun from the back of his old truck. And people are calling the guy and threatening to kill him and his kids because he's a traitor on the side of the terrorists and all this stuff. And he's like, come on, man, I'm a plumber from Corpus. I never left the thing. I'm a proud American patriot. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, of course, what had happened was the State Department had bought his truck and had given it to these guys. That's the only explanation for how that they had gotten their hands on it. And so, um, you know, Obama claimed, in fact, there's a hilarious clip. If you've never seen this, Keith, you got to look up this great clip of Ben Swan, the libertarian, uh, former local news uh, anchor, interviewing Barack Obama. And Barack Obama comes to his town and Ben Swan has a chance to ask him some questions. And I love the way he sets it up, too. He goes, you know, right now, this is before we took al-Qaeda's side in Yemen. This is when we're still fighting against al-Qaeda in Yemen. He goes, right now, uh, you're, you're hunting and, and killing. You got the CIA hunting and killing these al-Qaeda guys in Pakistan and in Yemen, fighting this war against al-Qaeda, right? And Obama's like, uh-huh, yeah. And he goes, so how come you're backing al-Qaeda in Syria? And Obama goes, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the thing. And actually, you know, I'll tell you, Ben, what we're doing is, 
we're being very careful. Like he concedes, okay, we're backing the same side of the war that Al Qaeda's on, but we're being very careful about vetting who we supply. <laughs> and also, we're not giving them weapons. We're just giving them non-lethal material, like say pickup trucks and money that, of course, can be used to buy guns and the rest. Um, and then I, I can't leave this out. Uh, there's an article in The Atlantic. It's an interview of Obama by Jeffrey Goldberg, who's Israel's commissar of American media. And uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, basically, first of all, the article is called As President, I Don't Bluff. And what he's talking about there is he's saying to Jeffrey Goldberg, would you please tell the Israelis for me that you believe me when I say that I will never let Iran get nukes? I will nuke Iran before I let them get nukes. And when I'm making a deal with them, that's to prevent them from getting nukes, not to help them get nukes. You believe me, don't you, John, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg? Please tell the Israelis for me. They listen to you. That's essentially the point of the interview. OK, but they talk about Syria in there again. It's called as president, I don't bluff. Okay, you go through there, control F for Syria, and you find Jeffrey Goldberg says to Obama, hey, man, don't you think that if we got rid of Assad in Syria, this is spring of 2012, so this is, you know, a year into the intervention here. Don't you think that if we um, got rid of Assad, that that would be a great way to weaken Iran? And Obama says, absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing, and that's exactly why we're doing it. We're targeting Assad, the secular Baathist dictator of, of Syria, whose coalition government essentially protects all of the ethnic and religious minorities, the Alawites, the Shiites, the Druze, the Assyrian, Chaldean, and Marianite Christians, and at least a solid plurality, if not the majority, of the Sunni Arabs as well from these Mujahideen terrorists that are being backed by the U.S. And he said... Yeah, but if we got rid of him, wouldn't that help weaken Iran? And Obama says, yep, that's right. That's exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so then Goldberg says, well, but what exactly are we doing? Can you tell me some more about what we're doing to achieve that goal? And he says, sorry, I can't tell you, Jeffrey, because your classified clearance isn't high enough. In other words, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Joke, uh -huh. joke. Meaning that yet we are arming the terrorists to fight against Assad, but I can't go into the details on that, but it ain't just trucks. And by the way, of course, as I mentioned, the Saudis, the Qataris, the Turks, and the Israelis were all working together on this same plan too. In fact, type in uh, for your audience, type in Biden, Harvard, Syria. And there's a clip on YouTube of Biden at Harvard explaining this whole thing but blaming it on all of our allies instead of taking any responsibility for the Obama administration himself. He says, oh no, it's just Saudi and Turkey and Qatar who have decided that um, they wanna back anybody who's opposing Assad, but it turns out that includes some really dangerous guys and that includes Al Qaeda terrorists. And so there's your story confirmed. In fact, I'll, I got another good one. Um, John Kerry, who was Hillary Clinton's replacement at state in the second term, John Kerry and his uh, assistant, I forgot the guy's name, they were secretly recorded while meeting with a group of exile rebel supporters in Great Britain. And they explain in there, John Kerry's own words, he's saying to them that, look, I know you guys want more guns, 
but we dumped a ton of guns into Syria, okay? And then he says this, I swear, you can check me. He says, we saw the rise of ISIS, but we thought we could manage. And we thought we'd be able to use the rise of ISIS as pressure against Assad, that he better resign. But that didn't work. Instead, he just called in Iran and Russia to help him. And so now we're in the position where we've got the Islamic State. And I don't know, he doesn't say this specifically at that point, but the Islamic State headed east into western Iraq. They didn't go west to Damascus, or they, they did try for a bit. And in fact, it was in the November of 2015 that ISIS was finally ready to march on Baghdad and had cut one of the major uh, highways. I forgot which, I think it was the M4 highway they call it or something like that, um, between Damascus and Aleppo. And they were marching on Damascus. And it was only then that finally the Russians intervened and came in and started bombing them. And you'll remember all the outrage in the liberal media at the time that, oh no, they're not bombing ISIS, they're bombing the rebels, meaning the CIA's terrorists. They're bombing the Al-Nusra Front and their allies instead of their old allies, the Islamic State. And they even came up with all these lies that Assad was secretly backing ISIS when it was the Americans and their allies, especially Turkey, who had been backing ISIS. And Phil Giraldi, the former CIA officer, had gone in 2013, had gone to Turkey. He had formerly been stationed in Turkey when he was CIA and likes to go back there on vacation sometimes and things. And I forget if he was in um, if he was in Ankara or Istanbul. I think he said he was in Ankara. And there are guys raising money for ISIS all up and down the street in downtown Ankara, whatever, right there blatantly in front of everybody. And, and everybody in the world knew that. If you wanted to go and fight with ISIS, you got to go to Turkey and then go across the border from there. There was even a case where the FBI and the Justice Department prosecuted an American who was trying to travel to Turkey to go fight with al-Nusra over there. And his defense, which is totally believable, was, but the CIA recruited me. I was going to fight on the side of the good guys. <laughs> what do you mean? Now you're going to put me in prison for material support for terrorism? Well, the FBI and the CIA are always fighting. It just ain't fair. And so, um, and then, and there were hundreds of Americans, at least thousands of Europeans, who went to Syria to fight on the side of the terrorists. Who then the FBI admitted they weren't even tracking these guys. They didn't even know which Americans had gone to fight and might be coming back again. And yeah, very much like uh, page fifty-seven of Fool's Errand, where uh, you reference a conversation between Wesley Clark and Amy Goodman, where uh, mm -hmm. he refers to a memo uh, that Donald Rumsfeld, drawn up by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld's staff, listing seven countries for regime change: Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. Or so um, we've gotten so much info on Iran. Um, what uh, was the U.S. role in Somalia? Well, yeah, this is the saddest one, and it always gets the shortest shrift, uh, unfortunately. But uh, it's at least as bad as the Yemen War or Iraq War II, I think. Um, in 2001, right after September 11th, they sent JSOC and CIA before even New Year's, JSOC and CIA, that JSOC is Joint Special Operations Command. That's the top tier Special Operations Forces, Delta and SEAL Team 6. 
and I guess sometimes part of the 75th Ranger Division. Um, and um, and I guess there's an Air Force component too. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, mostly means Delta and SEAL Team Six and uh, CIA, and they were sent to go and hunt and kill Mujahideen terrorists. And um, so what they did was they hired the bad guys from Black Hawk Down. You remember Adid was the bad guy in Black Hawk Down. Well, they hired his son and other warlords like him to go hunt down and kill Islamists. Well, of course, what they did was probably showed up with a few Islamist scalps, but mostly they were just building up their own power and influence. And the more they persecuted people, the more resistance they got, the more they went back to the CIA and asked for more money and more guns. And the CIA kept giving them more money and more guns. And the more money and guns they got, the more they abused the local population and the more that the population came together against them. Now, you hear liberals all the time say, oh, if you like freedom so much, why don't you move to Somalia? Because, of course, everybody knows that freedom is what's wrong with Somalia. Well, actually, freedom was working for Somalia. The formerly U.S.-backed communist dictatorship of Saeed Barre had fallen at the end of the Cold War. Yes, America backed the communists in Ethiopia. You're probably too young, but when I was in fourth grade, it was Michael Jackson and Cindy Lauper and Hands Across America to raise money for the people dying of starvation in Ethiopia. Well, um, that was the Soviet-backed communist government in Ethiopia that was starving everybody to death. America was backing their enemies, the Somali communists, across the line there. It wasn't communism. It was just whose side you're on that determined whether you got American support. And so, um, but after his dictatorship fell, the country fell into civil war through the 1990s. But eventually what happened was the warlords just burned themselves out. And no warlord ever ended up seizing major power in any place. And so the, the most powerful warlords were essentially, you know, neighborhood bosses that never really controlled an entire city or anything. And so Somalia was left in a state of de facto anarchy. And it's not that they had all discovered Rothbardian libertarianism. It's just that there was no one there to consolidate power. And so the port of Mogadishu and Kismayo were both wide open, no tariffs, open trade. They had the highest rate of increase of standard of living of any East African country at the time and maybe of all sub-Saharan Africa too. Um, and then that was also measured by increases in cell phone technology uh, being put up and all kinds of uh, measures of the increased standard of living. And um, in fact, I have an article about this for the Future Freedom Foundation. It's called U.S. Government to Blame for Somalia's Misery. And I cite my sources in there if you want to read where libertarians had found that, hey, anarcho-capitalism de facto liberty is working for the people of Somalia. Well, it wasn't until, and that was lasted, that lasted for years. It wasn't until America started backing these horrible warlords that the, the people of Somalia ended up coming together and forming the Islamic Courts Union to oppose them. And by union, they meant that very literally. It was 13 different groups that had come together to join in this new government. War is the health of the state. And this conflict had created a new government there. And 
the um, Islamic Courts Union in 2005 whooped all the warlords and forced them across the line into Ethiopia. They were, you know, holed up in hotels over there and the ICU had taken over the country. Then the Americans flipped out and said, oh, no, these are Al Qaeda guys and they have Islamic in their name and they're the very worst. And they had like closed down a couple of movie theaters, but they didn't have anything like the ability to enforce a Taliban style regime of Islamist austerity on these people. And it's a very different tradition there um, of Islam in Somalia. And they're not used to living like the Afghan Taliban rule. And they wouldn't have put up with that anyway. And, and the ICU didn't really have, I don't think, the will or the ability to try to force that kind of system on people. And they certainly had no alliance with Al-Qaeda at all. But then in – and so they consolidated their power through 2005 and 2006. And then in Christmas 2006, George W. Bush invaded. And he got the Ethiopians, of course, to lead the way. Um, but the CIA and the Joint Special Operations Command helped with the original invasion. And they sacked the Islamic Courts Union, forced them out of power – and committed massive war crimes. The Americans, you know, were mass murdering people from their AC-130s, uh, you know, with their Vulcan cannons and artillery and whatever they're blasting out of there. And the Ethiopians committed, and their historical rivals, the Ethiopians are Christians, and the Somalis are Muslim, and they've had their problems in the past. And so they came in, and they were raping and pillaging and burning and looting and murdering civilians and going crazy torturing people, including at least one American who was abducted and renditioned to Kenya and was tortured under the watch of the FBI and the CIA. And then what happened, though, was that uh, the very smallest and weakest part of the Islamic Courts Union, al-Shabaab, which means the youth, you know, they were nobodies in the Islamic Courts Union. The Islamic Courts Union was run by the uncles and the grandfathers and the imams and the village elders, the neighborhood elders. The youth were to sit in the back and be better seen and not heard. But now once the war came, war is the health of the infantry. And so uh, it was the youth, al-Shabaab, were the ones who picked up rifles and fought and successfully beat the the Ethiopian army back and forced them back out of the country again. And uh, so then America uh, doubled down their support for the Ethiopians who ended up reinvading. And then they also support the um, African Union troops, which is troops from Kenya, Ethiopia, Burundi, and uh, I forget where else, um, who came in as the occupying force. And the Americans and the United Nations created something they call the transitional federal government to be the new government of Somalia. And they fought like hell for years. And you read this on page 222 of Jeremy Scahill's book, Dirty Wars. And he went to Somalia and met with some of these Mujahideen warlords and wrote all about it. And on page 222, he's got a quote from the State Department lady. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, um... November, October, November 2008, time's up for the Obama, uh, for the um, Bush administration, right? They're on their way out. They've got to figure out something here. So Condoleezza Rice makes a deal and says that Sheikh Sharif, who had been the leader of the Islamic Courts Union, okay, Sheikh Sharif, you can be the president, but you have to be the president in the form of the 
transitional federal government that we've created here. And so he said, okay, and took that compromise and took power. So they just fought a war for two years, two full years, killed hundreds, of, at least hundreds of thousands of people. And then they decided, oh, well, screw it. We'll go ahead and keep Sheikh Sharif anyway and let him be the leader anyway. And then on page 222 of Jeremy Scahill's book, he has the quote from the State Department flunky saying, yeah, well, you know, ultimately we just wanted to take him down a peg. We just wanted to hurt him some and weaken his position. But now we're happy to go ahead and have Sheikh Sharif be the guy. And he ended up staying in power until 2012, the same guy. So in their own words, the war was for nothing. In their own words, it was a war that didn't have to be fought at all. And then the worst part of it, of course, is the drought and the famine that took place. So, and there's been a couple of them. The worst was in 2010 and 11. And um, what had happened was the sun came out and, and stayed out. There's no rain, there's a massive drought in all of East Africa. But you won't be surprised to know that even in Kami, Eritrea, they were still able to eat. In Ethiopia and in Kenya, they were also blasted by this same heat wave but they were able to survive. But in Somalia, they weren't. In Somalia, they laid down and died. 250,000 of them minimum died. Most of those, Keith, children under five years old, they died. And the reason they died is because of the war. You know, capitalism has abolished the famine from the face of the earth, except when a capitalist country like ours goes to war against helpless, weak, innocent people like these. And so what happens is, the farmers can't plant their crops and they can't reap them. And if the few farmers who are able to harvest their crops, they don't have any good vehicles for bringing the food to market. And by the way, there's no market. And if there was, there's no customers because nobody has any money. The entire system of distribution of the most basic facets of sustainable life were destroyed. And so the people were living in refugee camps um, you know, in little tents up and down the sides of the highways, and they're just laying down and dying. Most of them little baby children starving to death, children under five years old. You know anybody under five years old? Yeah. People listening, people watching, you know anybody under five years old? Those are the people who are starving to death in Somalia at the hands of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And now Trump, too. And we've been at war this whole time. And there's a, a great uh, article in the Washington Post about this is two years ago now of Donald Trump arguing with James Mattis, his then secretary of defense. And, you know, Donald Trump doesn't even know where Somalia is. Right. So he's going, well, where the hell is Somalia? And to his credit, where's Somalia? Why do we have troops there? Why do I care what happens in Somalia? Why should American soldiers be there? And then James Mattis tells him, well, sir, we're trying to prevent a Times Square attack. Well, but wait a minute now. Remember 40 minutes ago when we were talking about the Times Square attack? That was direct revenge for the drone war in Pakistan. That wasn't because we weren't fighting in Pakistan. That's because we were fighting in Pakistan that the Times Square attack on American civilians was provoked. But anyway, whatever. James Mattis is a liar. So he says, well, we're trying to prevent an attack on Times Square, Mr. Trump. And Trump still doesn't buy it. And this is according to the Washington Post now, so maybe it's a total lie. I don't know, but it seemed like it was coming from the Hawks themselves. And they said that Mattis told him, this is how the article ends. 
Mattis tells President Trump, you have no choice. And then what does Trump do? He sends the infantry, not just special operations forces and CIA drone killers, but he sends the infantry to go run around in the woods trying to hunt down and kill Al-Shabaab. And they've had, you know, all kinds of, of casualties of innocent people in Somalia under the Trump years as well. Here we are almost four years into Trump and he hasn't done a thing to stop any of these wars at all. Well, he's he's negotiated an exit from Afghanistan, but it remains to be seen whether that'll actually be implemented. But the rest of the wars, he's done nothing but double them. And what is the U.S. involvement in Yemen? Yeah, so this is really the very worst one. In 2009, Obama comes in and he orders the CIA, I want you guys to hunt and kill al-Qaeda guys. Forget all this going after Saddam Hussein and the Baathists. We're actually hunting and killing bin Ladenites now, okay? So go to Pakistan, go to Yemen, kill these guys off. He wanted to end the war on terrorism. He wanted to fight it and win it and finish it. Yeah, right. So what happens is the CIA does launch a air campaign and, and special operations forces launch a war against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. These were the guys who had helped coordinate the September 11th attack. They had bombed the USS Cole in the year 2000. And importantly, um, the real drone war in Yemen started in um, early end of October, beginning of November 2009. Well, then it was on Christmas Day 2009. The end of December was when the underpants bomber tried to blow up the plane over Detroit, and he'd been sent there by AQAP to do it. He was a Nigerian, but he'd been recruited in Yemen and sent by these Yemeni al-Qaeda guys to do the attack. And then according to all the official mythology, that's when America's intervention in Yemen ramped up was in response to the underpants bomb, when no, the underpants bomb was retaliation for the American drone war. Again, cart before horse, but... That's how they like to lie, by omission and by trying to confuse your chronology, you know. Um, and so, um, but if you go read antiwar.com for, you know, news.antiwar.com, Jason Ditz's writings for the fall of 2009, you see that America was, the drone bombing had already begun. So now this is totally counterproductive. The more they bombed Al-Qaeda, the more that they grew them. And Jeremy Scahill, again, he wrote about this in his book, Dirty Wars, and in two great articles for um, the nation. One of them is called um, uh, something Yemen war backfires, war in Yemen backfires, something like that. And it's about how every time that they dropped a bomb on the AQAP guys, they ended up killing innocent people and driving more people into the AQAP group. And in one important case, there was a, um, a town leader, village elder type guy who had gone to a meeting with the Al-Qaeda guys to tell them they better stay the hell away from his village if they know what's good for them. And the Americans bombed that meeting and killed the old man who was telling them to, that they better stay away if they know what's good for them, killed him too. And along with 20-something women and children were killed in that one. And so it's just like pouring water on a garden, right? Pouring blood on Al-Qaeda. You just grow them and grow them and grow them, okay? So that's in the south of the country um, against the Al-Qaeda guys. Now, approximately in the middle of the country is the capital city of Sana'a. And at that time, the dictator there was a guy named Abdullah Saleh. 
And Sala had been working for the Americans since at least Bill Clinton, I think the George W or George H. W. Bush years, like 30 years, loyal patron of, of America, um, client state. And so Obama had to pay him in money and guns for permission to wage the drone war. In fact, he would even take responsibility for drone strikes that everybody knew were American drone strikes. Chelsea Manning later proved in the WikiLeaks that they had a deal that he would take responsibility for the American deaths. Um, but then he took all the money and guns and picked a fight with the Houthis, who are a group of Zaidi Shia rebels from the north of Yemen, up in the Sada province. And the problem with that was every time he attacked them, they beat him. And every time he attacked them, they grew stronger, just like Al-Qaeda grew stronger every time we attacked them in the south. The Houthi group grew stronger and stronger every time Saleh attacked them. Then the Arab Spring revolutions and days of rage and all that come in 2011. And there's a massive protest movement, and the Houthis join it. The Houthis, the Southern Socialists, I don't know about the Al-Qaeda guys, but the Muslim Brotherhood and everybody else were saying, we got to get rid of Saleh now. We want democracy and or regular elections and whatever. Well, somebody set off a bomb and almost killed Saleh, or at least they wounded him pretty severely. So he was at home convalescing. And at that point, Hillary Clinton made a deal with the Saudis that let's go in there and we'll push him out and we'll install his vice president, Hadi, in power. And they held an election. And again, check my work. Just put in Hadi ballot 2012 and you'll see there's one man on the ballot, one name on the ballot, just like in the Soviet Union. Yeah, you can vote, but there's only one party to vote for. Same kind of thing here. And Hillary Clinton called this the invention of Yemeni democracy, that she and Saudi had installed a dictator. Okay, well, so Hadi made the same mistake that Saleh made in trying to attack the Houthis in the north. But he never had anything like the power and influence lined up that Saleh had had. And in fact, Keith, when Saleh lost his job, was fired by the Americans, he didn't just run off. He took his army with him. And took, you know, like two-thirds of the army followed Saleh when he left. And then, here's the rub. He went and joined forces with the Houthis. Because it turns out, aha, that Saleh was not a member of the Houthi political movement, but he was a Zaidi Shia from the north, just like them. And so he made an alliance with them, and they ended up marching on the capital city and seizing it by the end of 2014 and forced Hadi out of power. Now, if you check carefully, if you look at the, uh, in fact, just read my last couple articles for antiwar.com, there's some references to this in there. Um, wherever I mentioned Yemen, I always bring this up, that there's a Wall Street Journal article, and there's a, uh, an article in Al Monitor by Barbara Slavin, um, and she report, and they both report the same thing. Michael Vickers, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense for uh or no he was a general but he was maybe he's deputy secretary of defense for intelligence something like that i forget his exact policy his exact role so that's a civilian position i think but maybe he was out of the maybe he was a civilian by then I th i'm pretty sure he was deputy secretary of defense for intelligence but had been a two-star anyway so michael vickers explains to the atlantic council and barbara slavin reports this and then the wall street journal had it from other sources that the U.S. is working with the Houthis. We don't mind if the Houthis take over the capital city. What do we care about that? You know who the Houthis hate? Al-Qaeda. 
And so we're passing intelligence to the Houthis for them to use to target and kill al-Qaeda guys, which was working. And they were successful at that. But then just two months later, Barack Obama, in March of 2015, stabbed the Houthis in the back and took al-Qaeda's side against them. When Saudi Arabia wanted to launch this war, it was Crown Prince Bonesaw Mohammed bin Salman, who was at that time, had just been named Deputy Crown Prince and Defense Minister, just 29 years old. And Patrick Coburn wrote an article back at the time about how this is all public choice theory politics inside the Saudi royal family. This is, hardly has anything to do with the Houthis or Yemen. This is about Mohammed bin Salman moving up in the chain of command and solidifying his power inside the um, royal establishment there in Saudi Arabia, which apparently did help him because he arrested his cousin um, uh, bin Nayef and made himself crown prince. He's now the de facto king. Um, marginalized all his cousins, arrested all his uncles and anybody who could stand in his way and uh, and moved up and launched this war. And the Obama government helped them do it. And the Obama government, they told the New York Times that the reason that they did it was because they had to placate the Saudis. And they knew, as they put it, that the um, the war against the Houthis would be long, bloody and indeterminate. In other words, they knew that they didn't even know what victory was supposed to look like. And they launched it anyway. And why? To placate the Saudis. Why'd they have to placate the Saudis? Because Obama was in the middle of doing a deal with the Iranians for the, the nuclear deal. Now, you might think that that nuclear deal, which very much did lock down the Iranian nuclear program and prevent them from even being theoretically possible, uh, you know, within a year of being able to make a single nuclear bomb, you might think that was a big favor to the Saudis. That, boy, see how well we protect your interests, locking down Iran's nuclear program? But no, turns out that the Iranian bomb was always a hoax anyway. The Saudis weren't afraid of that. That was always a pretext. What they were afraid of was that Obama might tilt back toward Iran and make America friends with Iran again, and that Saudi Arabia would lose their place of importance in the American-dominated order in the Middle East. And so in order to placate them, he, one, went along with escalating uh, their policy against Iran's friend Bashar al-Assad in Damascus, and helped them to launch this war against the Yemenis, against the Houthis. And this meant and look, the Saudis don't have a land force of any real note, except for the U.S. Army. Um, but all of their planes and all of their weapons and everything that they have comes from us. And so it was American F-15s flying, dropping American bombs made by Lockheed and Raytheon. It's American ships in the U.S. Navy uh, sailing off offshore to enforce the blockade and help the Saudis enforce the blockade there. It was uh, Boeing planes doing the refueling so that the uh, Saudi F-15s can loiter and, and look around for new targets to hit. It was American contractors, uh, spies and military men who were helping them pick all their targets, collecting all their intelligence for them. And I don't know exactly what you call this, Keith, but I have five different sources who each have one source. Four journalists and one former ambassador, all who have one source each saying 
that there were American white boys sitting in the back seats of those F-15s, holding the princelings' hands all the way to their targets, helping them fly in order to drop those bombs, at least in the early days of the war. And so even though just like with Obama in Libya, you can call it leading from behind, it's absolutely an American war. It absolutely could not be taking place without American support. And Obama and Trump both have, to a slight degree, kept up the war against AQAP as well, but not really. I mean, there's a mission here and a mission there, but in fact, AQAP has joined up the United Arab Emirates mercenary army there. The UAE is in league with the Americans and the Saudis, and their mercenary army on the ground includes all the Al-Qaeda guys have joined them. And, you know, there's a reporter that I talk to from time to time from Sana'a named Nasser Arabi, and I and former New York Times reporter before he started reporting on this aspect of the war that they don't want to hear. Um, but I asked him, hey, man, you know, they say they're still fighting AQAP at the same time they're fighting AQAP's enemies, the Houthis. Is there any truth to that? And he just laughs and scoffs. Oh, oh, really? The CIA is drone bombing the UAE's army on the ground? Yeah, I don't think so. And, you know, the Associated Press uh, has done actually quite a bit of really good work on American support and our allies' support for AQAP there in this war and including the UAE's torture of uh, innocent Yemeni captives and so forth. And CNN last year did a special report, and I know CNN, but this was credible, um, did a report about Al-Qaeda guys driving around in American MRAPs. And this is not like Western Iraq where ISIS is stealing from the armories that the Americans left behind. This is equipment that the Americans gave to the UAE. And the UAE is filling them up with their mercs, which include a bunch of Al-Qaeda guys. And so this war is treason. It is being fought on behalf of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. The guys that helped coordinate the September 11th attack, the guys that bombed the coal, the guys that did the underpants bombing on Christmas 2009, the guys that did the, Har the Charlie Hebdo attack in France, that did the package bomb plot that failed, luckily. It was meant to blow up a plane over the U.S. Uh, this war is treason. And just like Somalia across the Red Sea there, it amounts to a genocide, a campaign of starvation and mass death against the civilian population of the country. And as Martha Mundy, uh, above all, has documented, but many others as well, the Saudi, U.S., Saudi, UAE alliance here, Al-Qaeda alliance, they have targeted the farms. They target the grain silos. They target the flocks of sheep in the field. They target the uh, irrigation systems. They target the hospitals, the waterworks, the electricity, the sewage. They bomb dozens of hospitals. Um, they, they're doing everything they can to destroy the very basic, uh, you know, uh, parts of the Yemeni economy for the sustainment of civilian life. They're deliberately targeting and killing the civilian population in order to try to pressure them to overthrow their government, which never works. It's never worked. We've had the same policy in Cuba for 70 years. It hasn't worked. We had the policy in North Korea for 70 years. It's never worked. We had this policy in Iraq for 12 years between H.W. Bush, I mean, uh, for, well, 10 years um, between H.W. Bush and 
Bush Jr. Well, 12, because it was started halfway through Bush Sr., then all the way through Bill Clinton, and then a couple of years into Bush Jr. Um, they had this policy against Iraq. Never led to the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, but it did lead to the September 11th attack against the United States. Our policy of keeping troops in Saudi Arabia, airmen in Saudi Arabia, in order to bomb and blockade Iraq, in order to force them out, is the main thing that provoked them to turn on the U.S. and attack them. And sure. attack us back in 2001. And, uh, and on page, on page and wait, let me just say real quick that we know for a fact that at least a quarter of a million civilians have died in this thing. 85,000 children under five years old. 85,000. And, and that was last year's numbers. They're certainly much higher now. And we're also on the verge of the rainy season and therefore a third cholera outbreak as well. Uh, the last two cholera outbreaks out there have been the most severe in recorded modern human history with hundreds of thousands of cases and thousands of deaths. Sure. And on uh, page 37, you mention uh, Madeleine Albright on 60 Minutes uh, discussing those sanctions, saying that she believed that the price was worth it. Later on page, uh, I think it's 56, uh, later you actually quote Bin Laden's letter to the Americans, which he actually addresses sanctions against Iraq. So it's not mm -hmm. like well, I kind of have a feeling, like they're the ones who say, I have a feeling they hate us for our freedom. We have actually documented evidence to back up any uh, any statements that we make. Uh, of course, if you go to clintonfoundation.org under charitable donations between 10 and $25 million, you could find the Saudi royal family there. Also, November 20th, 2018, statement from President Donald J. Trump on standing with Saudi Arabia after the Khashoggi incident. Of the $450 billion, 10, $110 billion will be spent on the purchase of military equipment from Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and many other great U.S. defense contractors. That is on whitehouse.gov. So yeah, uh, the Saudis uh, are uh, absolutely uh, infiltrating uh, the U.S. government. Um, that's why uh, Russia is the great, uh, uh, great distraction. So. Yeah. This well, think about what he's saying there, that the USA, that we're simply mercenaries and that if you pay us money, we'll murder whoever you want. Uh, the Houthis never attacked us, never threatened us. Again, they were working with CENTCOM to kill Al-Qaeda guys up until the moment that Obama stabbed them in the back. And then think about what he's saying there. First of all, the $400 billion, $450 billion that the Saudis invest in the United States, what a crock. There's no $450 billion coming from Saudi into the United States. Even the $100 billion that he says is going to these few defense contractors is way overblown. That's what they promised to spend over the next 10 or 15 years, this kind of thing. And so, but even take it at face value. Well, this is a $20 trillion economy. So assuming you had no morals whatsoever and you're simply a mercenary, that still is absolute chicken feed. That has nothing to do with benefiting the American people in any sense whatsoever. You know, benefiting employees of Lockheed, fine. But that's such a small percentage of the GDP of this country. There's no way that you could spin that as beneficial to America as a whole at all. And then, especially as Thomas Jefferson said, um, I tremble when I reflect that God is just and that his vengeance cannot sleep forever. And so whether you believe in, in karma or Jesus or whatever is your thing here, um, this is the history of the world being written. 
America killing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. In the words of our president, for the money, we're doing this. Yeah, it's incredible. Smedley Butler warned about it in like the 1920s. Eisenhower was a World War II general and a president. He warned about it. And then you have Trump openly saying it. Um, yep. So this is going to be released on April 19th tomorrow. Uh, so I got to ask you two more big questions and then we got a five question lightning round. That shouldn't take too long. Uh, why does Waco matter? It was some deaths 20 years ago. Why is it so important? Well, um, I mean, first of all, because human life is precious and those cops had no right whatsoever to kill those people the way that they did. And the Army Delta Force helped them do it on the, the fire on the last day. Um, but so, you know, the real meaning of it in terms of, you know, why it should matter to America for the long term is, you know, ultimately that was a test to see what we would put up with. That's how it played out anyway. That wasn't the purpose of it. I'm not saying that, but. Ultimately, you know, the American people supported the massacre, supported the tank raid. And we're told that these people were, you know, had committed suicide. You know, really, if you look at what they did at Waco, it was the exact carbon copy that they used against Saddam Hussein um, 10 years later in 2003. They said, look, this guy is crazy. So we can't negotiate with him. There's no point in negotiating with him because he's so damn insane. Secondly, he's got illegal weapons that the government says he's not allowed to have and he could be plotting to use them against us. And then also, he's really bad to his own people. And so we're going to we have to liberate them and save them from this guy. And it's the exact same thing that they did to the Davidians that they ended up doing to the Iraqis. That was the, the, and, but turn it around the other way. Like, what do they do? They turn this group of Texan American Christians from the heartland of Texas, the from central Texas, and they turn them into a foreign enemy state. They turned David Koresh into Hitler and said that we have to stop him before he conquers all of Europe, before, he marches on downtown Waco and takes it over or whatever it was that supposedly he was going to do. And they turned this group of anyone who's not a liar, who knows anything about it, will tell you they were decent people. They were not criminals. That's uh, if you watch the documentary uh, Waco, A New Revelation, where they interview Sheriff Jack Harwell. He says they were salt of the earth people out there, man. They were good people. They were not criminals. They did not have a drug lab. They did not abuse their children. You know, they were a, a pretty kind of wacky breakoff group of the Seventh-day Adventists, but they're not, you know, too much further on the fringe than a lot of Protestant groups in this country. And that's not to say that David Koresh was a good person, but it is to say that he was not Charles Manson. He was not Bo and T or, you know, Jim Jones running this insane cult for his own power. It's just not true. And, but it didn't matter. The government was able to portray it that way. The government was able to lie to the American people and make the American people believe that Koresh had somehow lured these cops out to his house just to ambush them and kill them all. Which, how come only four died then? Seems like they'd all been lying in a pile of blood in the front yard. But anyway, um, in, in fact, none of that was true. And, and when they had... 
a chance for peace, they started the war. When David Koresh said, okay, God told me to write my interpretation of the seven seals and started writing, they knew that the game was up. He was on his last seal. He was writing the seventh seal, and then he was going to come out. And so they launched the attack then uh, in order, mostly, I think, to make sure to destroy the crime scene. Um, the crime being the ATF raid in the first place where the house itself was defense exhibit A, full of incoming bullet holes through the walls, through the metal door in the front, through the roof where they'd been firing their M-16s from a National Guard helicopter that Ann Richards, the Texas governor, had given them to use in the name of the lie that there was a drug lab there, a meth lab, which was never true in the first place. And so it just goes to show that, yes, they can take a group of American citizens and turn them into a foreign country and wage a war against them, and including finishing them off with the Delta Force, uh, finishing them off by putting a bomb on the concrete room where the women and children were hiding. It was a pantry. It was a storm shelter. They called it the bunker and militarized. It was women and children hiding under towels from the banned poison gas, CS gas that's illegal for use under the Geneva Conventions that they used on these people. Then they bombed that room and crushed and burned the ones that hadn't already suffocated from the poison gas. It was an absolute catastrophe, an absolute debacle and and massacre of these innocent people. And they got away with it scot-free, called it a suicide. Knock a building over with tanks until it catches on fire. And then set up a bomb on top of the concrete room where the women and children are hiding and still call it a suicide. And they could get the American people to swallow it whole, too. That, to me, as a kid, you know, I saw this play out in front of my eyes, and I never believed it was a suicide. I always believed that the cops had murdered those people. Why don't you show me the back of the house then? Yeah, because that's where they're murdering the people. And we know now from the forward-looking infrared footage from the FBI's own plane from the FLIR, you can see the hostage rescue team and the Delta Force get out of those Bradley fighting vehicles and fire their machine guns toward the building as it's burning down and killing off the people who are trying to escape the fire in the back of the house. Um, but the American people, they loved it, man. They thought it was great. The USA Today opinion poll had 93% supported the raid. Even after the next day, after you knew, not do you support raiding the place, but do you support the raid that just ended in catastrophe? And the answer was yes. And, and, and I'll tell you why too. It was because it was interrupting daytime TV, right? This didn't all happen on one day. It was a 51-day siege from April, uh, from uh, February 28th through April the 19th. So just think how long ago, especially this year, think how long ago February 28th was, right? We've had a very long March in April yeah. this year. Um, that's how long this the Branch Davidian show was interrupting The Price is Right and One Life to Live. And the Housewives of America wanted them all killed. And I know that because I was 15 sacking groceries at the time at the local grocery store in northwest uh, suburban, white, upper middle class Austin, Texas. And every single one of those housewives wanted to go in there and murder those people themselves. Well, I say they just go in there and end it. End it now. He said he was Jesus. Nail him to a tree. Kill them all. And... I bet if you'd line them up, I bet you couldn't find one housewife in Northwest Austin who was supposed to go in there and end it now. Other than I hope my mom, I don't remember really discussing it with her at the time. 
but I'm pretty sure she would have been good on it. But the rest of them, no. The rest of them wanted blood because the price is right is more important. Their daily soap operas are more important. And how dare this mullet-headed, trans-am-driving, redneck idiot interrupt their daily TV schedule. And go in there and end it means kill them. Not him. Oh, he said he was Jesus. So kill every child. All 17 of them. Kill every every man and woman who are the helpless, useless dupes of this charismatic cult leader. Well, if he's a charismatic cult leader, that makes them virtually innocent victims of his, right? Kill them too. That was the consensus of the housewives of Austin, Texas. These people are have no better right to live than a Rackies. And so they were killed. That's exactly it. And even the original justification of uh, what they were going in for, they could have, I had David Thibodeau on my show, and he goes, well, they mm -hmm. could have arrested Koresh when the ATF informants were shooting with him the days before the uh, initial raid on February 28th. Mm -hmm. So it uh, looks like a definite setup, much like Randy Weaver, uh, the FBI informant, sold him the sawed-off shotgun by a quarter of an inch. Right. Uh, as a justification to further invade. So, uh, yeah, th that's a, a total setup uh, founded on lies. Although, well, I'll quibble with you on uh, what happened with the Randy Weaver thing was the ATF, it was the ATF informant that set him up on the on the barrels because they were trying to then force him to become an informant, and he refused. <laughs> so then they sent him the wrong court date, and that may have been an accident. I don't know if that's true or not. But then when he didn't show up for court, they gave him a warrant for failure to appear. At that point, it was federal marshals went to his property. And what happened was the son, Sammy, and the family friend, Kevin Smith, were walking with the dog. And the dog caught the scent of the marshals hiding and took off after them. And they shot the dog. And then so at that point, the son, who was only 12 years old, or I think he was 14. He looked like he was 12 or something. Um went, oh, you son of a bitch, and started shooting at them wildly. I don't think he even saw them. But then they started firing back, and he turned to run, and they shot him in the back and killed him. And the family friend, Kevin Smith, I'm almost certain that was his name. I've, it's been a long time, but the family friend was wounded and made it back into the house. And at that point, the FBI came and laid siege to the whole place. And then next day or two days later, the FBI sniper Lon Horiuchi blew Randy Weaver's wife Vicky's head off as she was holding her infant daughter in her arms at the time. Um, and um, and then the siege lasted another few days and Bogreitz, the special ops guy, negotiated an end and Weaver eventually surrendered and was acquitted. And the jury that acquitted him said that they wished that they had had the power to convict the ATF and the marshals and the FBI for what they had done to him and his family. And he ended up winning millions of dollars in a civil suit against him and all of well, that. I, I thought Weaver's initial issue with the ATF was he was selling guns without a license. Is that not true? I'm not even sure if that's true at all. I know that they, they tricked him into selling a sawed-off shotgun that was oh, three-eighths of an inch too short or whatever it was. That was my and they, yeah. they entrapped him with an informant because they were trying to force him to become an informant. Because yeah. he had gone, he had been seen at like a white supremacist rally and they wanted him to inform on the other people who were there and he refused. And that was where all the revenge came from there.
But um, anyway, the same thing here with the Davidians. You're absolutely right that, as the saying goes now, they could have arrested David Koresh any time. He went jogging out on the roads out there in the countryside, um, you know, on a regular basis. He went to Walmart once a week, whatever. They could have arrested him whenever they want. And for people who don't know the story, I strongly urge you to watch Waco, The Rules of Engagement, and Waco, A New Revelation. And they show in there, in the first episode, um, they show uh, the gun dealer, Henry McMahon was his name, and he was Koresh's gun dealer. And one day Koresh called him while the ATF was there asking about him. And McMahon says, oh, hey, I got Koresh on the phone right here. He wants to talk to you. Koresh wanted to invite them out to come and look at all of his weapons. And the ATF agent went, and refused to take the call because they wanted the raid. It was called Operation Showtime. And the undercover ATF informant there was a guy named Robert Rodriguez. And he'd been out there shooting with Koresh over and over again. And that day, he was there that morning. And Koresh said, listen, I know you're a cop. And I know you're here, you know, for the raid that's coming and everything. But let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and tries to save his soul and convert him that morning. And then this guy... Was it Rodriguez? Um, I'm almost sure his name was Robert Rodriguez. And he runs out. He tries to warn. He calls ATF and says, they know we're coming. The element of surprise is lost. Don't come. And in fact, I think he even claimed that he was out in the road, like waving them down, trying to stop them on the road on the way in. And they just blew right past him and raided anyway, knowing that the element of surprise had been completely lost. Koresh knew, you know, saw right through the facade and knew this guy was a cop and tried to stop the raid. And then and the the local news crews were already there in the front yard set up ready for the whole thing before the cops ever got there because they had sent out press releases to all the news crews that we're going to have a big thing. And the whole deal, the reason they called it Operation Showtime was because, remember, this is just the very beginning of the Bill Clinton years. This is Bill Clinton's been in office a month and a week. And the ATF had been in a lot of trouble because they'd been selling N-word hunting licenses, um, you know, as a joke, supposedly. And they had been sued by uh, women and black employees of the ATF for sexual harassment and racial harassment and discrimination. And so then in comes Bill Clinton and Al Gore. And one, you had the whole Bill and Hillary and Captain Planet and the UN and Earth Day and all this kind of whole liberal PC culture that came with them. And you had Al Gore, who wanted, who had his program of reinventing government, is what they called it. And what that meant was they were going to do a bunch of consolidations. And one of the proposals was to fold the ATF into the Justice Department and put them under the FBI of the Justice Department. Whereas at this point, they were part of the Treasury Department. And so they wanted to resist that. They're already little brother to the FBI. Now they would be nothing compared to the FBI if they were changed from Treasury to DOJ. And so they launched Operation Showtime as a public relations stunt to prove to the Democrats that we might be a bunch of mullet-headed rednecks, but we target mullet-headed rednecks too. And here this, you know, Trans Am driving Koresh, he's going down at our hands, and that's going to prove how useful we are to the liberals. And that was why they did it. That was the reason for the raid was as a PR stunt after the disaster of Ruby Ridge and the the um, 
sexual and racial harassment lawsuits to try to save their bacon. And it worked. Of course, Congress, even with the total debacle, Congress lined up and gave them all the money that they wanted. Yeah, that is uh, what happens. I mean, I think George Bush was at like a 90% approval rating after the 9-11 attacks. It's like when government yep. screws up, then they have every incentive to do so. Yeah, back, to, back to your great quote from the book there of George Bush saying, and I'm so proud that from the time of September 11th to the end of my presidency, there were no more terrorist attacks. Uh, yeah, what about September 11th itself? And this was, you know, what was funny too, the Republicans spent so much time saying that, that George Bush kept us safe, George Bush kept us safe. That and no one would ever contradict them about it. That, like, yeah, well, I mean, except that one big one, right? And so then when Jeb started running for president, he got stuck on the talking point, but he couldn't think it through in any realistic way. So he says, My brother kept us safe. Remember the rubble? Remember the rubble of September 11th? And he kept us safe after that. Well, Donald Trump is not a CNN anchor. So Donald Trump calls him on and goes, yeah, I do remember the rubble. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, the, that attack happened on your brother's watch. You want to brag about that? And Jeb was taken totally by surprise because no one had ever made that point before where he could hear it. And he literally said, remember the rubble? As though you're just supposed to, that was supposed to be the Bill Clinton years or something. Um, not George Bush's watch. Hey, he was only president for eight months before that attack. I mean, have you ever had a job where your boss expected you to start doing your job within the first eight months since he started paying you? Yeah. But anyway, oh the, wait, before we go, yeah, it's also the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. So that and was- I'll tell you just real fast about that. Yeah, that was gonna be it my was, question. Oh, okay. So we'll go ahead and ask it. Okay, I was gonna say, uh, what is the most important aspects of the Oklahoma City bombing that uh, you would like people to know about. Okay, and that is that there's a huge cover-up. McVeigh did it. He was guilty as hell, but he had a lot of help. And he was not a militia guy. He was a Nazi, a real one. And all of his Nazi buddies, they were allowed to get away with it. And the cops let them get away with it. And the reason why is because they were all undercover informants and flip states witnesses and guys that the FBI should have had tabs on and should have prevented they had all the prior knowledge in the world that they needed to prevent that attack, and then they didn't. The ATF was going to raid the Nazi compound before it happened. The FBI prevented them from doing so, said, we'll handle it, and then they didn't handle it. And so there was a massive cover-up. But here's the good news. A guy named Richard Booth has collected thousands of documents from the FBI, the ATF, the Secret Service, the local cops, the trial transcripts, everything in the world. And should be, by the time this episode airs, every bit of that will be available for your audience at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. And we will have the world's greatest collection of documents of the truth behind the Oklahoma City bombing that anybody's ever seen. He's come from the Jesse Trinidou uh, hearings out in Utah um, and on and on. And so... In fact, we're even talking about when we're done with this, we should probably hand the entire hall over to WikiLeaks too, because they do not just things that are leaked directly to them, but they also store, for example, they have a whole section of Hillary Clinton's emails that were released by the State Department that were not leaked to them, but were released by the State Department, but they 
keep them and catalog catalog them all anyway. So when we're really done with this, I'm going to talk with Richard Booth and see what he thinks about getting all these mirrored on WikiLeaks as well. But this is the mother load, and this proves that it was uh, McVeigh was in conspiracy with the Aryan Republican Army bank robbery ring, and that these were the guys who did the attack, and that um, you know one of these informants, Andre Strassmeyer, seems like he was actually an agent provocateur. He was not really a Nazi at all, but was pretending to be a Nazi, had infiltrated their group, had encouraged the attack, and participated in it, and then was allowed to get away. Uh, the others, I don't know if they, I don't think any of the others were necessarily provocateurs, but I think it's pretty clear that Strassmeyer was. In fact, he admitted it to um, virtually, almost, almost perfectly clearly admitted it to Ambrose Evans Pritchard of the Daily Telegraph that... He wasn't just an informant. He made the attack happen. And, and uh, also you have women like Carol Howe, who was an informant at Elohim City, who was saying, I heard them talk about the Murrah building specifically so many times that there's no way this is a coincidence. She went along with them when they cased the building. And then later she drove her ATF handler, Angela Finley Graham, on the exact route of them casing the different buildings in the city and said, this is where we went and drove right by it and pointed at it. And her handler, Angela Finley Graham, admitted that that was true under oath in a deposition that she had been, she warned specifically that they were gonna hit this building. And so that was the key to it. The ATF had an informant inside the FBI's terrorist ring. And the FBI shut down the ATF investigation, said, we'll take care of it. And then they didn't take care of it. And 168 people were killed. Yeah, it was sort of like the modern-day COINTELPRO, where they were infiltrating groups in the 60s. They had PATCON in the 90s, Patriot Conspiracy, where they were infiltrating mm, you know, militia groups of the sort. Um, and you're going to have all of this, everything, every document. You could spend the rest of your life reading the documents that we have on the Oklahoma City bombing, all at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. It's the mother load. Terrific. So I want to start the lightning round. Five quick questions for you. Scott, what is the most important thing you learned from Jacob Hornberger? Oh, um, oh, I know. This is a good one. I interviewed him about it, too. He's got a five-part series on Operation Keel Hall, where yeah. Harry Truman took all of the Russian prisoners, the Soviet prisoners who had been liberated by the Americans and the Brits in World War II, and he sent them all back to Stalin to be executed. Millions of them. Millions of them. Operation Keelhaul. What's the most important thing you learned from Pat Buchanan? You have a great interview with him on your radio show about Churchill, Hitler, and the unnecessary war. Yeah. Um, well, I've learned a lot of great stuff from Pat. I mean, he's really good on, on all kinds of things. We run him regularly at antiwar.com, but um, I think he makes a solid case that if the Brits had not given a war guarantee to the Poles, they would have been much more likely to just let the Germans have Danzig back, and then there might not have been a World War II at all. And that, um, you know, certainly uh, launching the air war that he launched and bringing the French into it and everything like that prevented Hitler from waging war against the Soviet Union for two years, where the, the Nazis and the Soviets had divided Poland after the war had started, they were sure to end up in conflict, Hitler and Stalin. 
But Churchill insisted on turning Hitler west first against all the Western democracies and conquer all of Europe first before he could get around to turning around and attacking the Soviets. If that hadn't happened, the Soviet Union probably would have been destroyed by the Nazis, and then the Nazi regime would have never outlived Hitler anyway. It would have been, you know, probably self-destructed in the process of destroying the USSR, but certainly wouldn't would not have outlived Hitler himself. And so, um, as Churchill himself put it after the war, huh? I guess maybe we stuck the wrong pig. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. And huh? I guess maybe huh? We're a mistake there, because then of course the Soviets went on to support the rise of Mao Zedong in China, and the rest of world communism and the American empire and the cold war against it. And everything is history from there. What is the most important thing you learned from Murray Rothbard? Um, I guess that there's a really smart libertarian take on the conspiracy theory history of the 20th century. You know, I had read a lot of John Birch Society propaganda and stuff when I was a kid. I was never a right winger, but I liked all their conspiracy stuff about the Morgans and the Rockefellers and the Council on Foreign Relations and kind of the secret government behind it all. And in Rothbard's masterpiece, Wall Street Banks and American Foreign Policy, he tells the entire conspiracy theory history of the 20th century, only with none of the BS. Because he's Rothbard, he's not of John Bircher. And so he doesn't get all bogged down in Freemasons and Skull and Bones and, and distractions, but he just calls it the Rockefeller World Empire and explains all the corrupt corporate interests behind, you know, the real one world government, the U.S. government. What is the most important thing you learned from Ron Paul? Oh, man, um, there's a lot there, I guess. Um You know, to start, he set a, a great example of that you don't have to be any kind of liberal or hippie to be for peace. That, you know, he, in a sense, is the most conservative member of Congress in a way. He's a libertarian, but, um, you know, he really, he helped solidify my libertarian beliefs that I already had from studying the founding era and from listening to Harry Brown and others. And then Ron Paul is just so dang good on everything that by the time I started paying attention to him in 1997, um, he was just so good on Iraq and terrorism and the dot-com bubble and then the housing bubble after that. And just, he's so right about everything. I guess mostly what he did is he confirmed my beliefs uh, to such a great degree and, and really showed, you know, the humanity of libertarianism. A lot of people think of libertarians as all a bunch of selfish Ayn Randians and that kind of thing. And Ron Paul really puts the lie to that. He's such an, an intelligent and caring and compassionate person who, who cares, you know, deeply about human liberty for everybody, not just for himself, but for us all. Uh, Scott, finally, uh, you dedicate Fool's Errand to In Memory of William Norman Grigg. What is the most important thing you learned from William Norman Grigg? Well, uh, I learned a ton of great stuff from William Norman Grigg. He was the editor of the New American Magazine in the 90s. He was the reason I read the John Burt stuff uh, so much back then. And um, and I think he really quit being a New World Order kook right around the same time as I did in the run-up to Iraq War II. Um, kind of dropped all that stuff and, and got a, a clearer picture of what's really going on in D.C. 
And, um, and he was just such a principled guy and such an eloquent speaker and writer and everything. And, and he really showed how someone with that kind of conservative background can really put opposition to the local police state, not just the feds, not just the ATF, but local cops abusing people. Um, what the kind of um, writing and activism that you tend to expect to come from the progressive left, the ACLU, uh, the Innocence Project, and people like that. And and here's old Will Grigg, the former Bircher, um, you know, sticking up for people on the receiving end of the worst of bad trials and police brutality and abuse and that kind of thing. And it's not so much exactly what I learned from him, but just how proud of him I am to see how many other people learn from him uh, about what's truly important um, in liberty and what's most to be protected by our movement and who needs sticking up for by those of us who really get it. And so, um, yeah, I, I miss him. I gotta say it was just, uh, it was three years and a couple of days ago was the, the anniversary of his death three years ago. Um, it was the greatest loss to our movement since Rothbard died probably. And, um, I really miss him a lot. He was just one of the very greatest of us and, and showed the kind of heroism that we should all be aspiring to. Well, thank you for uh, keeping uh, the great uh, word alive on the Libertarian Institute as well as antiwar.com. Scott Horton, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Keith. Appreciate it, bud.